a lot of people have been requesting longer videos. And while I've been doing my best to make the new videos longer, I also see some of you saying that you'd like to hear best of videos and videos compiled of my scariest and favorite stories. Well, this is going to be one of those videos. Some of these stories you may have heard before and some of them may be new to you. Regardless, I hope you enjoy them. And if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit them at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. Be sure to hit that like button and subscribe if you're new, and get ready to relax to these creepy and allegedly true disturbing horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. I haven't told these stories to anyone in several years. Every time I do, I get chills all over, and my eyes would start watering, even though I wasn't crying. This took place at an abandoned insane asylum in the city where I grew up in South Alabama. It has since been torn down. Both stories come from very close friends of mine. They do not know each other in any way. The first took place around eight years ago. Two friends of mine, we'll call them Mike and Jake, decided to climb the fence around this asylum, as many others have done before. They walked into the front door shortly after 11pm. As soon as they step in, they both feel like something is telling them to leave, but they decide to split up and explore different floors. This probably was not a very good idea. Mike decides to take the second floor and Jake starts to walk around the ground floor. As Mike ascends the stairs, he hears a noise that sounds like a child whimpering. He comes back to the landing between the first and second floors and sees a little girl in the fetal position in the corner. He walks toward her, thinking maybe he can help, but when she looks up at him, she disappears. He runs back down and grabs Jake by the arm. He says, man, we have to get out of here now, and explains why. They leave and never go back. The second story comes from a girl that we'll call Sherry. She goes in with two males and another female. They split up and start exploring each floor. I believe they were at least three floors in. Sherry is on the second floor with one of the males and they walk into a room with a gurney on a side. There was a patient file spread out all over the floor, some even dating back to the early 1990s. They look through a few and put them back. Then, suddenly, the gurney starts moving across the room somewhat slowly, all by itself. They look at each other, wondering what the hell is going on. One of the guys with them says to her, It was probably just a draft in the room. Let's see if the gurney moves easily and we'll know. Sherry steps forward and tries to push the gurney back. The wheels are rusted and locked. They won't move at all. They decide to get out of that room and explore other areas. They walk down the hall and Sherry decides to go into another room alone. At this point, the other two people are nowhere nearby and the male is in another room. As soon as she steps across the threshold, she feels her mindset change abruptly. She described it to me that it felt like she was someone else, that she felt defeated and that she knew she was just a lowly woman, not worth anything or worth living. She picks up one of the pages of the patient files that are thrown around the building and starts to read it. A woman who was physically and emotionally abused by her husband was kept in this room around the same time the facility closed. 
She drops the page on the floor and screams for her friend. He runs into the room, wrapping his arms around her waist and pulling her back across the threshold. As soon as she is out of that room, she feels relief and feels like herself again. She explains what happened, and the guy is so scared that they both decide that it's not worth it anymore, and they find their friends and leave as quickly as possible. They never went back in, and the building was demolished just a few years later. This story is from 2014, and it was the last time I ever went urban exploring. I am from Northeast Ohio around the Youngstown area. When I was in high school, me and my friends often would look for places to go, especially haunted places in Ohio. It took us all over the state, from Helltown to Athens. Even dabbled into famous haunted places right over the state line in Zombieland, Pennsylvania. However, this isn't about any of those. One day, I was bored and know that I normally go ghost hunting and urban exploring with groups of friends and stuff. Today, I called a random buddy and asked him if he wanted to go with me. Not only did he want to, but he said he knew of a place. The place was an old abandoned rail yard. I have heard of this place before, but didn't go because the owner of the property will call the cops on you. But since he offered to drive... I couldn't resist finding a new place. Getting there, we parked at a well-known restaurant and catering company across the street. We just had to walk through a wood line in a small tunnel. It opened up to a huge area with a big garage to our left with the actual train tower to our right walking around the place that was a lot of rubble and what looked like satanic graffiti. I'm not sure if it was real or not. I was always told there was a cult that inhabited there, but it was just a legend. At least I thought so. But exploring around, there was a lot of neat sights. The old elevator shaft said gateway to hell. Walking up to the top floor of the tower about six floors up, my buddy did what every guy wants to do. Pee off the highest spot. Well, I said go for it and walked away, letting him do his business and back to me exploring around. I hear a loud bang and my buddy running over to me. His eyes were wide open and he had this look of horror on his face. I looked at him and said, Everything okay, man? He replied back with, No, there, there's a guy. Okay, we are exploring and trespassing, so this is either just another one of us or there's a big problem because that's the owner and we're going to get in trouble. I whispered. He looked me in the eyes and said, No, man, I, I think he's dead. My stomach sank and I was like, show me. Walking over, he explained that while he was going to take a leak, he found a backpack with spray paint in it, and on the window, the ledge said, Jump. I did. In disbelief, I walked over to the window, and it clearly said that, and with a count of three, I peeked my head over the ledge. And to my horror, there was a kid no older than me mangled with a bloody face against the building. I froze, and looked back at my friend. We instantly started running for the stairs. On each floor, I remember checking to see the status of this kid. Out in the open rail yard, now I look back to see a clearly dead person. How did I miss that walking into this place? This was the way we walked in and somehow we did not notice. We both agreed to call the police and report this. When they arrived, we were taken into question and brought to the station to make our statement. They informed us that he was a few days dead, but had no missing reports in the area. About a year later, after a Halloween party... I brought this story up to someone that was like, 
That was one of my friend's boyfriends. Well, was. Apparently he was acting weird, and there was talk of him being in a cult, but not for sure. My friend, since this account, has suffered mental problems, and I have since become a firefighter and EMT. So that was just another incident for me at this point. But it has always stuck with me, as the last time I have ever went urban exploring or ghost hunting. Back in college, my friends and I got into the habit of exploring abandoned buildings. We've seen some incredible places and have gotten some really cool souvenirs. I don't really condone taking stuff from buildings, but if it is about to be torn down and contractors have taken out everything they deem to be worth something, then I'll gladly take that depression glass they left behind. I digress. It's a small group of friends that goes exploring with me, and I love introducing new people to it. A friend of mine had asked me on several occasions if I could take him somewhere because he never went exploring before. I decided to take him to an old paper factory that didn't have much inside, but had an absolutely beautiful view of the city from the roof. Also, it was incredibly easy to get in and out of, so it was great for a beginner. We went with a few other people, but two of my friends had decided to wait outside for us since they had been in and out of the building so many times that it wasn't interesting to them anymore. It was always good to have a lookout anyway. As we went to climb inside, a drunk couple came out. Not unusual, a lot of people used the building to smoke, drink, or paint in. And we asked if there were many people inside. They said they thought it was mostly empty, but they heard someone banging around a few floors up that startled them. They said that he sounded angry and maybe we should avoid the roof. Since we weren't there to drink or anything, the roof was our only goal. We decided we'll take our chances and head up. After all, it's a massive building and we didn't think we would run into the guy. We walked up ten flights of stairs and the climb to the ladder to the roof was pretty brutal. My friend is impressed and the view is absolutely beautiful. As we are about to head back down, my friend waiting on the street calls to us. He says that a man has passed out in the street and two of them pulled him out of the way of traffic and called an ambulance for him. They suggest we waited out on the roof to avoid exiting the building while the cops are there. Neither of us can afford the $5,000 fine or two-week jail time just for looking at the city of an abandoned building. We wait, but we probably shouldn't have waited on the roof. We get the all clear from my friend to come back down and we head down the ladder. My friend goes first and then our flashlight dies. The ladder is tricky to get down, and when you can't see it, it's pretty hard. It's missing some rungs. So I came down very slowly in the dark, afraid of hurting myself or anyone else. I hop down and my friend tells me very quietly that he hears someone in the room next to us. And I shrug it off. We already knew people were in the building. Then, the screaming starts. At first, it almost sounds like one of my friends who waited inside yelling my name. I hesitated at the top of the stairs just outside the door of the room the screaming was emanating from, trying to decide if it was him or if he's playing some sort of prank. The guy I came into the building with grabs my wrist and starts running down the stairs. At this point, it's obvious it's not my friend, and it's just this guttural, intense screaming. It didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. We start running down the stairs and then hear really loud banging to go with the screaming. It sounds like this guy has a very heavy object that he is swinging around the walls and hitting the exposed pipes. There is only one flight of stairs because every other way down is out of order. So, we are trapped in this stairwell, 
and it's ten flights till we reach the ground floor and have to book it to the opposite side of this factory and back out the hole we climbed through. Besides screaming and swinging of that heavy object, we hear him barreling down the stairs behind us, but he is at least a floor behind. Whatever he is using to hit the walls and pipes with is clearly enough to do some damage to our skulls because a bit of brick chipped off the walls when he hit it with whatever he had in his hand. We've only made it down three floors at the beginning of each flight of stairs there is a new door that opens onto the entire level. In other words, it is painfully obvious where we've gone. After flying into this room, we've noticed it's just been gutted like every other floor, but more of the windows are boarded up and it's incredibly dark. All that's in this room to hide in behind are some pillars. We get behind one of them and huddle together. This guy stops outside the doorway to the room we are in, and he is still screaming. It's terrifying. Then he starts swinging his weapon around and slamming it into the door frame. We're sure he's going to come in, and the only way is this one door. Neither of us look around the pillar to see if the guy is there, and we have no idea what his weapon is. Nearly four minutes pass and he hasn't stopped screaming. For whatever reason, he doesn't come into the room we are in, but starts running down the stairs. We can hear him hitting pipes and smacking the walls, and we just wait there. We have seven floors to go down still, and we could pass him in any doorway on that way down. Eventually, the screaming and banging stops, but we still think we should wait. That's when we hear something from a different corner of our room. There's just enough light from a window in there to see that there's a figure getting up off the floor. The person has been in the room with us the entire seven or eight minutes we've been in there, and they haven't let on until now. This person, who is in front of the only light source, is a totally black figure. It's now shuffling towards us without making a sound. It is exactly like a zombie movie and we run. We don't bother to find out what this person's deal is and temporarily forget all about the first clearly dangerous guy. For an asthmatic, I hauled my ass down those stairs and never paused to catch my breath even once. As we are reaching the bottom of the stairwell, the screaming starts again and is coming from the room next to us. We don't stop running the whole time. We literally slide through the hole in the wall we climbed through without even a, a second thought. We never look back and I don't think I've ever climbed through a hole so fast. I don't even remember doing it. Our two other friends were waiting for us and we throw ourselves into the car. They asked what happened because apparently the man was so loud they could hear him screaming and breaking things from outside the building. They thought we were the ones making out the noise and they were going to give it a few minutes before calling us to remind us that the police were still patrolling the area for drunk, underage college students and we should probably be quiet. We tell them what happened and then decide to carry on with our plans for the night because beer was a totally necessary thing after that. Yesterday I was doing something I love to do. Explore. It sounds stupid, but to me exploring abandoned areas or off-limit grounds is intriguing. Look up some videos on YouTube about urban exploration if you want to learn more about the hobby. For now, it's story time. I was raised in the city of Atlanta, which is pretty awesome. There are lots of places to explore and we find new places every single day. Much of what we find is outside of the metro area. We use Google Earth looking for abandoned shacks, buildings, and stuff like that. Then we go explore. So yesterday we found a little home that looked completely torn down and wanted to check it out. So we walk through some woods during the middle of the day and arrive. 
As usual, we knock and yell, announcing that we are here and aren't robbers or cops. We have stumbled upon people robbing copper from abandoned houses multiple times, and it is better to let them know who you are than to run into them unannounced. Nobody answered, so in we went. We weren't scared per se. We have done this type of thing a ton of times, and barely have ever come across anything unusual. So we started searching. We noticed the floor feels hollow. When walking on the floor, it didn't feel hollow though, but when you jumped up and down, you could notice the noise sounded like it was empty. We peeled back a smelly rug and found a little hatch. No way. No way in hell this is happening. My brain is freaking out. Part of me has seen enough horror movies to know not to go in. The other half knew this is what any urban explorer would dream of. So I opened it. There's a small staircase. It was folded up, kind of like the old fold-up ladders people use to get into their attics. Three of us climbed down in. First, there's an old rotten bag of lays. There were bugs inside and no chips. Using rubber gloves, I picked them up. Expiration. January 27th. 2014. Somebody was here. It had obviously been a while, though. There are a lot of people who do what we do in Atlanta. Finding new, unexplored places is rare. We kept walking around and searching, but we didn't find much except for a ratty old computer monitor. Then we heard strange-sounding footsteps coming from upstairs. We had no idea what to do. There was frantic kicking on the floors above us, as if somebody was being restrained. We scrambled for the window. The room was a basement, but the top of the basement was above ground and had these little mini windows, letting in just a little bit of light. I tried to open the first one, but it was jammed. There was dirt outside blocking it. My friend managed to get the second one opened. We all ditched our bags and crawled through. We ran like hell, got in the pickup truck we came in, and drove. And that's the story. I wish I could say more happened and share more detail, but we weren't there for very long. And there's no way in hell I'm going back there just for no reason. One thing we are considering is setting up a GoPro on the window we escaped from and setting it on the time lapse and see what we can catch. It started several years ago. Me and my friend's interest in urban exploration. I was a junior in high school at the time which was when everyone started to earn a lot more freedom. So we took the chance to be out late whenever we could. Now keep in mind that I live in a major city in central Colorado, so the nightlife is never really lacking. We could always find something to do and were especially drawn if there was an element of danger. We wouldn't always plan these trips, but we made sure as hell that if we were going into any old building in the dark, we would have a knife and a flashlight for safety. We never really had to defend ourselves, we came very close one evening. It must have been around November, because there wasn't much snow on the ground yet, but it was chilly. Directly across the street from the abandoned hospital, which we have hypothesized is still around from the TB era. It's a hospital that is not in use anymore, but it is connected to a hospital that is newer and is in use. The two are connected by an underground tunnel, which I can only assume was a way to move bodies without alerting the patients. This is a common feature among old hospitals. We had been inside the hospital a couple of times, but never found anything outright strange. Only the occasional sign of others having been there or lived there at some point. 
What was piquing our interest that night was the abandoned library next door to that hospital. It was connected but only by exterior walls. To get inside, you could not cut through the hospital, but instead had to hop over a tall wall and climb a very high fence. A few of us had backpacks containing the safety precautions we all needed and a couple bottles of water, so nothing too heavy or valuable that would get damaged when tossed over obstacles before us. A little way off the road, it was dark if you clung to the buildings. We did for a while before stepping behind a small patch of shrubbery, which we determined was an easy way over the first wall, since the only other way to gain access was by a chained, unclimbable gate at the bottom of a set of stairs, facing away from the ledge. Both were parallel to the library, so when tucked back into that corner behind the bushes, no one could see us from the street. I do not believe I went first, but I did not remain behind to be last over that wall. It was too high up for me to jump over and haul myself over, so I resorted to stepping on a pipe jutting out somewhere lower along the wall. It gave me a bit of a needed boost, and soon I was up and over, moving into the library's courtyard. Another girl and I waited for our other two girlfriends to join us. Upon an initial glance over the courtyard, there was no obvious way in. To our right was a dilapidated fountain, which I took joy in imagining how it would look in spring with water spraying from it. It was beautiful, detailed stonework. Now, however, it had been in such long disuse, and the earth at our feet was cold and hard, there were no signs of another soul for years, save the fifteen-foot chain-link fence directly in front of us, separating the courtyard in half. I could tell it hadn't seen the same weather as the rest of the courtyard, because the metal showed no signs of rust. That must be our way in, we agreed because a fence like that, someone obviously wanted to keep somebody out. We hurled our bags over the fence, hearing them clank on the ground rather silently due to their lightness. I was the third over, because I have a slight fear of climbing, and it took me a bit to mentally prepare myself. I made it to the top of the fence in short time, then sat at the top straddling it with my legs on each side. I had two girls on the other side of me, and one girl behind me who was telling me to hurry up. I spent a good couple of minutes up there doing another mental preparation and doing some deep breathing, then climbed down and waited for the last girl. At the time, I was thinking that this had to be one of the scariest things I've done in a while, because I tend to avoid climbing at all cost. Of course, this is an irrational fear, as I've never fallen, but the phobic fear didn't even compare to what would happen to us next. The last girl's feet hit the ground and all four of us split in the smaller half of the courtyard looking for any kind of entrance. We decided that breaking a window would be too loud and draw unwanted attention, not to mention we could get really cut up, so that wasn't an option for us. Searching for a little longer, we didn't find anything that looked remotely plausible, until we found a grate near the base of where the two walls met. I could not believe we hadn't noticed it before, and upon closer inspection, the grate was already moved slightly from its resting place, so it would be easy to lift it the rest of the way. The smallest and least fearful of our group went first. After moving the grate, there was a small drop down. It was no more than three feet down and two feet wide, but inside there was another drop down to where we could see the library basement. She hopped down into the small square landing, only to almost immediately freeze. We looked amongst ourselves wondering what was wrong. There's a guy down here, she said. What? Where? I can see his outline she said. I leaned forward and tried to make out a shape, but it was further down than my light of sight permitted and too dark. Hello? 
she called out. He responded the same, asking who we were. Just a couple of chicks, she spat out bluntly. What he said next sent chills down my spine, and it was as if he could feel the darkness radiating out of the hole in the ground. Suddenly, it was very still and quiet, like the darkness had spilled out and weighed all of us down in that gloomy courtyard. He said, in what I can only describe as a lustful tone dripping with ill intent, I'm addicted to following the sound of women's voices. My friend looked over at us blankly, but there was nervousness underneath. Unease. Something in his voice sounded like it wasn't an empty threat, like he wasn't just saying something creepy to get us to leave. She looked back to where he was and said slowly, That's not cool. The man under the dark earth began laughing maniacally, and not in a kind of way a good, a good actor does, no. In the type of way that you could feel his utter insanity hit us like a stale air. We looked at each other for what felt like hours in that gloomy courtyard, but I knew it was only a couple of seconds, because we all exchanged looks without even speaking that we need to get out of there right now. I was not about to risk some nutcase coming after us, even if we did outnumber him. The friend scrambled up and out of the landing, and I was never over a fence faster in my life. Fifteen foot potential fall and I didn't even have time to think about it. We didn't stop running until we were on the street about halfway down the block out of breath. I could still hear that laugh sometimes. I've always wanted to share some of my stories with the show, and I'm finally making the jump to do so. This one is one of the most recent. In my hometown, there's an abandoned asylum across from my college. This is a place I go to often, usually to sit on the steps and not really do much else. After telling one of my close friends about this place, she wanted to see it for herself. The two of us trekked an hour from my house in the rain to get there. This meant it was dark by the time we got there. We looked around the area. There were a few other people, but we ignored them due to my friend feeling a bit uncomfortable. After roughly about an hour, we looked around the area. There were a few other people, but we ignored them due to my friend being a bit uncomfortable. We started to head home as we passed by the main building. One of the other people our age whispered at us to get our attention. He and two others had found an opening to the building through the boarded window. The three of them seemed nice, and they said going as a group would be better. I wasn't so sure because I had a bad feeling, but my friend went ahead. We had to hold open a very big log to keep the board open, this log taking three of us to lift due to its weight. This comes into play later. I was reluctant, but my friend had already hopped through the window and was with complete strangers at this point. I couldn't leave her and coming here was my idea, so I climbed in. Regular exploring took place, using our phones for flashlights while navigating the musky place which has been left decrepit since the 1980s. The others wanted to go upstairs, which I was already anxious and didn't think it was a good idea due to the fact that the building was so old and hadn't been touched in so long. After some convincing, I walked over to the stairs while the others were in the hall near our makeshift entrance. Behind me suddenly came very fast and heavy footsteps, as if someone was barreling down toward me. At the same time, the board closed. I remember one of the girls screaming, No, wait! We all scrambled to get out, the others leaving me behind. I pulled myself out, getting a cut from the broken glass. We noticed the log was gone, nowhere to be seen. I had a feeling of darkness after I left and didn't stop shaking for about six hours. I don't know if this was paranormal, 
if this was linked to some sort of negative energy in that place. I mean, it was an asylum. It wasn't a happy place at all. It could have been deaths and many other residual hauntings in that area. I used to play a lot of Insurgency Sandstorm with a fixed set of guys and girls. We used to organize using a Discord server. People came and went as time went by, but there were a couple of us that stayed in touch quite frequently outside of just organizing gaming sessions and became pretty good friends online. Insurgency, for those who have not played it, is one of those hyper-realistic military shooters that tends to get really intense. Occasionally, downright terrifying when it's at its best. I'm not saying we had this proper Band of Brothers vibe going. I know it's only a video game, but like I said, a handful of us ended up getting pretty good, and we became solid friends. We were bonding over an intense level of teamwork required to win the rounds, not to mention the sweaty-palmed, adrenaline-fueled firefights. One of these friends was named Colin. One day, Colin tells us that he wouldn't be playing Insurgency for a little while, because he had taken a job teaching English as a foreign language out in Indonesia. He had wanted to do some traveling for a while, but just didn't have the money available to him, and getting qualified to teach English gave him an opportunity to see some more exotic areas of the world, whilst getting paid for it. We were gutted to hear the news. He was one hell of a sniper. Many times, we'd be pinned down by some enemy machine gunner, only for the gunfire to stop suddenly, followed by a little laugh from Colin, and a, have that you twat, in his Scottish accent. We absolutely loved him for moments like that, but we were also happy for him, and since he promised to stay in the Discord server, we would be able to stay in touch and hear some stories of his adventures out in the tropics. So a few months go by, and we were enjoying hearing stories of his travels, along with being updated with photos of him exploring some remote parts of Indonesia. It was photos of him with school kids he was teaching that really made me smile, though. He looked like he was having the time of his life, especially when we saw some videos of him teaching the kids some obscure English phrases. Not only that, but occasionally we would hear some of the kids repeat the phrases back in kind of like a Scottish accent, and the idea of a bunch of Indonesian kids learning to speak English with an Edinburgh accent was pretty hilarious to us. I mean, imagine it. Some American wishing an Indonesian fellow good morning or something, only to hear his somewhat amusing accent in response. Still makes me chuckle even now, to be honest. Then, in September of 2018, I woke up to news that there had been an earthquake in the sea just off the coast of Indonesia causing an earthquake that had resulted in a massive tsunami that had destroyed huge sections of the country. Immediately, I thought of Colin. I jumped into Discord using the app on my phone and sent him a message asking him if everything was alright and hoping he had not been caught up in the tsunami. Obviously, there was a huge 7 or 8 hour time difference between the UK and Southeast Asia, and occasionally, Colin didn't reply for hours so the fact that he didn't immediately reply wasn't a massive concern to me. But he didn't reply all that day, to the point to where I started expressing concern to some of the other lads in the server, sharing the news of the tsunami with them and mentioning that I was worried for Colin. I thought that he might have been caught up in it. We knew from the stories online about the areas of Indonesia that had been affected, but we didn't know exactly where Colin was 
only that he was in some remote areas and didn't always have immediate access to Wi-Fi. Another reason for us not to immediately be worried. But he didn't reply for the next few days either. It got to the point where a week had gone by and we had heard nothing back from him. No one had even seen Colin online since we had gotten the news of the tsunami. That's when we really started to worry. And as the days went by, we got more and more frightened that something had happened to him. It's around then that I started to go back through some of the messages he'd been sending over the past previous month or so. He had been all over Indonesia and had spent his first few weeks in the capital city of Jakarta, which had remained relatively unaffected by the earthquake and subsequent tsunami. But then I found out that he had traveled out to a place called Palu to teach English there, and as far as I could tell, that's where he had been the time of the disaster. I then cross-referenced the name of the place with the stories about the tsunami and found out that it had been one of the worst affected by the destructive tidal wave that apparently reached 23 feet in height. 23 feet of rushing water that had destroyed pretty much everything in its path and caused the deaths of over 15,000 people. And likely, Colin had been one of them. We were devastated, but the worst part is, even to this day we have had no closure about it. We knew Colin quite well, but he kept his online and personal life separate. We never knew his last name or the names of any of his family, so it's not like we could get in touch with them and find out if he really died or not, or to see any funeral arrangements or give our condolences. But I think the fact that even now, his Discord account lies inactive, is evidence of the fact that he did lose his life out there. Maybe he's okay, and he just never bothered to get back on Discord. Maybe his close encounter with death made him realize that video games were just a waste of time or something. But I think that's just wishful thinking on my part. In my heart of hearts, I know he's gone. I just hope he's at peace now. And whatever family he had are okay. Rest in peace, Colin. We still miss you, mate. I'm going to start off by saying all Tinder dates aren't so bad. I mean, I met my boyfriend of four years on there. I got lucky. But this story is one of the bad ones. So I was on Tinder one day and matched with this guy. We'll call him Jonah, just because I honestly forgot his name. I was really bored that day and wanted to find someone to hang out with. After a few hours of back and forth, he messaged me. Hey, want to come over? I'm babysitting my sister because my parents went out, and I can't leave her alone. Mind if we hang out here? I let him know it's no problem. Mistake number one. I just had matched with him that same day. I get ready. It's probably about 7.30 and I leave my house. I get to his house and he isn't as cute as the pictures. I mean, I guess I didn't really mind because we all find angles that make us look better. I say hi and he says his sister is up in her room but we can hang out in the family room. I sit on the couch and notice he is a little nervous, but I was nervous too meeting someone for the first time. We talk for a bit about life and work and then I ask for some water. He brings me a glass of water. I was not going to drink water like that. I was hoping for a water bottle. We were talking and he seemed extremely nervous. He was sweating a lot. I asked him if he was okay. He said he was, but he wanted to tell me something. He said, well, I'm looking for someone to, uh, dominate. I was shocked, and I didn't really say a word. 
He then went on explaining what he would expect of me, and he would give me money, but only if I do everything he wanted. I still didn't say anything to him. I was still in shock and trying to process exactly what I was hearing. He took my hand and said, let me show you. I still did not say anything as I was trying to process what was happening. He then took me to a room where he had three ties hanging up, like men's church ties. He said, pick one. I did not move or speak. He grabbed one off the wall and turned me around and tied my first hand. At this point, I am still frozen and shocked. I can't talk and I can't fight. But something inside of me suddenly snapped, and I snap out of it and tell him to let me go. He thinks I'm playing, but I yell and say, let me go. He unties me, and I quickly get out of that room and go grab my jacket and head to the door. You know that feeling you get when you're going up the stairs from the basement and you feel like someone's going to grab you? Well, I had that same feeling leaving out the door. I thought he was going to grab me and pull me back into his house at any moment. I ran to my car and locked the door so fast. I texted my friends sitting there, shaking, exactly what happened. I had to let them know where I was, and I had to calm down before driving. This might not sound so scary to some people, but I, I've seen way too many documentaries, and I didn't want to end up like one of those poor girls or guys you see. So please, be safe out there while on Tinder. And don't go to people's houses on the first date. I'm an audiophile. Always have been, and always will be. I also play a fair amount of online video games, too. Ones where it's crucial to have clean, crisp audio. And games where you are reliant on hearing other players' footsteps, having that kind of audio quality gives you a real edge over the other players. That's why I had my heart set on the Bose A20 Aviation headset. They were without a doubt the best gaming headphones on the market, and at just under $1,000, they took a lot of work to afford. I had to work 10 months at a local gas station, including weekends, saving just a few bucks each time until I could finally afford them. But when the delivery guy had finally dropped them off, and I carefully unboxed them and plugged them into my iPhone for a music test, I discovered they were well worth the wait. The depth and range they produced were phenomenal. I heard songs in ways I had never heard them before. But most importantly, I couldn't wait to see how they improved my gaming performance. A few hours later, a buddy of mine and I were playing a game called Hunt Showdown. Apologies for the tangent, but it's a terrifying experience. It's set in the swamps of post-Civil War Louisiana, the game has all kinds of monsters to hunt and take bounties from, but not without a little competition from other players. There's heavy emphasis on stealth, sneaking up on monster hunters before mercilessly dispatching them and robbing them of their prize, hence why I was so excited at using such high-quality audio gear. I was certain it'd give me and my buddy a crucial edge. I was only partially right, though. The quality of the headphones just made the game more terrifying. I could hear every little footstep, every creak of a door opening or a rifle reloading. At one point, I was about to ask my buddy if he had opened a door in the place we were hiding. I turned to see some black figure, holding a fire axe above his head. I screamed down the mic as the sickening crunch of the axe impacted with his skull, echoing around my ears. My friend was already gone. It was intense, seriously intense and it was every bit as amazing as I imagined it would be, so obviously, we spent hours hammering out round after round, 
and not once did I take the things off. Usually, after a few hours, wearing a pair of headphones can get kind of uncomfortable. But these things had foam padding in all kinds of places, ergonomically designed not to cause any kind of discomfort. I swear, I'd wear those things all night, just plugging the wireless connector into my phone, TV, laptop, anything and everything. I was kind of disappointed when it came to the end of the night and my buddy logged off to sleep. I stayed up for a few more hours testing out each game I had and seeing how the new headset enhanced the audio. And not once was I disappointed. I remember finally logging out and taking the headset off before checking my phone. Strangely enough, I had like four or five missed calls from an unknown number, and my phone wasn't even on silent. It had been ringing and vibrating over on my coffee table at multiple times throughout the evening, and not once as I heard it. These were seriously impressive. The noise cancellation was very effective. I knew that every penny spent on that headset was worth it. Only, that's about the time my phone buzzed again. The same, unknown number text popping up on the screen. It was the sheriff's department, and on the other end of the line, a lady deputy was asking me if I had been home that night. My first thought was just what the hell had happened and how they had gotten my number. But I guess the cop just have access to info like that. Or at least, that's what my brain thought. But I answered the lady's question and told her, Sure, I'd been home all night. That answer seemed to confuse her a bit. All night? She asked again. And again I reiterated that, yes, I'd been home all night playing video games. When I asked her why she was calling, she seems just to answer a question with a question. We've had deputies hammering on your apartment door for the last four hours. And you didn't hear us? Not even once? Then it hit me. I had had my new headset on, not only that the volume was all the way up, not a usual thing I do, but like I said, I was testing out the noise cancellation. I sighed before I started on my long-winded explanation as to why I had not heard them calling. I felt kind of dumb having not heard them, and wondered if I had been in danger at any point, totally oblivious to the home invader attempting to break in, all while I'm just sitting there, gaming in total ignorance. Only when I asked what had happened, it was worse than I ever could have imagined. There had indeed been a break-in, only it obviously wasn't my apartment. It was the one above. A guy had busted into the apartment of the girl that lived up there with the intention of robbing her. According to the cop, she had resisted, trying to fight the guy off, but that hadn't gone well for her. Not in the least bit. The home invader had tortured her at first, trying to get her to confess where she had money or jewelry hidden. When it turned out she didn't have any, he beat her to death in frustration. This whole thing happened without me hearing so much as a iota of noise from above. I'd been there, happily playing PC games and talking to people online, with someone being murdered right above me. If only I had taken them off for five minutes. If only I had stopped fawning over them for a little while. That girl might still be alive. It's taken me quite a while to get over it. I moved out of that apartment and back into my parents' house. At least I could find a better place to live later. I also sold the headset too, not losing too much money in the process. But sometimes, I feel like I would have been happy to throw those things in a lake, even if I did work the better part of a year to be able to afford them. What makes it all worse is that it wasn't some random accident. My greed, my own selfishness, that's what killed that girl. That scumbag psychopath might have been the one that murdered her, but I was the one that nailed her coffin shut.
So I'm a big PC gamer, and I played a lot of online stuff with my mates. But the corona hits, and my gaming time shoots up like tenfold. Lack of hours at work, social distancing, basically a bunch of stuff contributes to me playing a hell of a lot more than usual. So me and a few of my mates are using Discord voice chat one night while we're on Overwatch, just blazing through round after round, when a mate of ours, Phil's, starts doing something bloody weird. So, at one point, we hear what sounds like whispering noises coming from someone's mic. I remember just ignoring it at first, until it was so frequent that we start calling it out like, who the hell is whispering down the mic? It's hella creepy. No one wants to initially own up to it, which just sort of makes me laugh it off at first, partly out of being genuinely amused, and partly just out of nervousness, because it was legit creepy that no one was owning up to it. But it carries on even after someone calls it out again. So I ended up checking Discord, watching all the little icons until the whispering starts up again. It was coming from Phil's mic, and now that I was seeing it for real, it did sound kind of like Phil's voice. So, I'm like, Yo, Phil, stop whispering, dude, it's creepy. What are you, possessed or something? But instead of being like, Ah, you got me, Phil insists he's not whispering. At first, I just laughed again and was like, Dude, I'm looking at everyone's icons, and I can see it's you. You can't fool me here. But again, Phil is insistent that he's not whispering, then actually whispers after he speaks, genuinely, like he's doing it to take the piss. Again, I'm confronting him, laughing like, dude, you just did it again. Only, he just gets more angry and tells me I don't know what I'm talking about and that he's not doing any whispering. That's when the whole mood changes. We can hear in his voice that he is deadly serious, that he himself believes he's not whispering, even though he blatantly is. I mean, it was either an Oscar-winning performance out of our junk rat-playing friend, or he seriously believed he was not whispering. And God love him, but Phil is no actor. Either way, the mood got super, super tense in the voice chat, and it wasn't brought up again. To this day, I have no idea what was going on there. He doesn't play with us much anymore, so it's not like we really get the chance to hear the whispering all that often. I don't know if it was a mental problem or whatever, but it honestly was the creepiest moment I've ever had in a Discord voice call. I mean, stomach-droppingly creepy. So, wherever you are, Phil, whatever you're up to, I hope you're doing better, mate. I really do. This all happened when I was 19. I'm not the best looking guy, so I've never had much luck with women, and I ended up on Tinder. I wasn't having much luck on there either, until the third month of using it, when a blonde woman named Katie messaged me. She was pretty enough, and I just dismissed her as a bot. It wasn't until three days later that she messaged me again, which was odd because bots almost never message more than once. I clicked on her chat and replied, then looked at her profile. What I saw was generic, but wasn't a bot's profile. We had been talking for about a month when she proposed the idea that I come see her. I was reluctant. She lived nearly eight hours away from me by car. But I had to admit, I really did like her quite a bit, and I had been thinking about asking if I could come see her for a while now. After a bit more badgering from her, I finally said that I would take the drive to go see her. At this point, I had no reason to doubt that she was who she said she was. Everything appeared legit online, 
We had video chatted every other week and called most days. I just assumed I got lucky. Things did get a little weird on the way there, though. She kept messaging me the entire time, asking me where I was and making sure I was still coming. At some points, when I took more than 30 minutes to respond, she would send me a slew of annoyed texts. Admittedly, I had chalked this up to her being nervous about me coming to see her. I was nervous too, so I couldn't put too much blame on her. I have never met anybody online either, so this was new. I had a hard time finding the house at first. The directions she gave me were confusing, and it was back through a series of gravel and dirt roads and a large thicket of trees. It was still about midday when I came into view of an old-looking house. A window on the second floor was boarded up, but it didn't look abandoned. Just worse for wear. Katie's red buggy that she liked to talk about was parked in front of the garage. I took a look at my phone and texted her that I was there. She only sent a smiley face in return. When I got out of my car and to go knock on the door, I noticed someone was looking at me from the second floor window. I found it a bit creepy, but figured it was just her father or something. She had told me that he comes stay with her every now and again, so I ignored it and knocked on her door. She answered with a smile and even gave me a kiss which surprised me and I followed her inside. We sat down on her couch and started talking about our plans when I asked her about her dad. You didn't tell me your dad was here, I said. Was that going to be a surprise or... Katie looked confused and told me her dad wasn't there. I still thought she was keeping up the act and I told her that she didn't have to keep pretending, but I had seen him looking at me through the upstairs window. Katie went pale and said we had to get out of there now. We both ran to our cars and when I questioned Katie, she informed me that her dad was not there and that she had been home alone until I showed up. I called the police and while I was on the phone, giving the address, Katie gasped and pointed at the window where I'd seen the guy last. He was looking at us from the window again. I got a better look at him. He seemed older and frail, almost like he hadn't eaten anything in a while. He left the window after we saw him. Looked like he kind of scurried away. The police took half an hour to show up and the whole time Katie was crying and mumbling about how she was an idiot for not keeping her doors locked. When the police finally did show up, one started asking me and Katie questions and the other two searched the house. They came back a little bit later and told me and Katie that they didn't find anyone. They did find that the back door was hanging open. Whoever it was had probably ran out into the woods, but the cops were sure that the house was empty. After the cops had left, Katie asked me to stay the night because she was scared and shaking. She didn't want to be in her house alone that night. I gladly did and we slept downstairs on the couch as Katie's bed was in the room next to the one the man had been seen in. Katie had also brought out her shotgun that her father had given her, but she never used. I told her it was fine. The man was gone but she insisted, saying she'd feel safer if she had it out. I'm glad she did. Later that night I was still wide awake watching TV. Katie had somehow managed to fall asleep. From the kitchen I heard the sound of the doorknob being turned. At this point, I wasn't even scared. I was more just angry. I flipped on the light in the kitchen and pointed the gun at the kitchen door. And there he was. The guy that had been in the house before was standing on the other side of the glass door. He looked shocked, and I'm glad the door was locked. The man unfroze and yet again ran into the woods. I woke up Katie and told her what happened, and called the police yet again. When they arrived, they did a sweep of the woods and found no one yet again. They told Katie and me that it was probably a good idea to stay somewhere else for the night. Me and Katie said our goodbyes, 
She was going to stay at her friend's house and I was going home. I left a few minutes after Katie did. I was on my phone with my brother telling him about what happened. My headlights were on, and as I was talking, something caught my eye. There he was. Once again, the man standing at the corner of the house just watching me. I gunned it out of there, and didn't even bother calling the police again. But I did text Katie, and she said she was going to call them again. I don't think Katie ever went back to that house, though. At least not alone. What's better on a chilly fall night than curling up in front of the TV for a great scary movie? And nobody has a better collection of horror, thriller, and the supernatural than Shudder, the best streaming service for horror. Shudder is the exclusive home for the found footage hit VHS 94, a Shudder original. Binge the latest seasons of Creepshow and Slasher, both exclusively on Shudder. Catch new episodes of the drag competition show, The Boulette Brothers Dragula, and the documentary series Behind the Monsters on the origins and pop culture dominance of your favorite modern monsters. New exclusives this month include Nicolas Cage and Prisoners of the Ghost Land and killer shark movie Great White. It's got some of my personal favorite stuff going on as well as Blood on Satan's Claw and Dead and Beautiful, which premieres 11-4. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. The Netflix of horror, if you will. There are new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every single week. Honestly, I love Shudder, and I've been using it even before they sponsored the channel. There are endless movies, and I've still barely scratched the surface. Join me and tons of others in the swamp, and try Shudder for free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com and use promo code SWAMPED, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and be sure to use code SWAMPED. Hi guys. To start this off, I'm a 21-year-old EMT firefighter operating in North Central Arkansas. I, along with our station, watch these stories as they pass time and are a good scare. But I thought it would be time to share this story with everyone here. We all have a plethora of crazy stories, but this is by far the scariest one I have ever been a part of. Well, to start this off, we were working nights this period. We got a 911 call around 2.15 in the morning. The call came in as a 28-year-old female that was having suicidal ideations. We got in the truck. We were told that the police were en route and made our way to the address. Everything was going normal like every other call. About 15 minutes away from the caller's address. To give some context if you're not from North Central Arkansas, you know that it is heavily forested down to many two-lane highways with no houses or civilizations for miles. Well, while we are driving through these dead forest roads, we spotted a car that was parked at an angle across both lanes, obstructing the entire road. The car looked to be abandoned with all doors including the trunk and hood open. We were not scared per se, but indeed creeped out as this was very strange to see in the middle of a forest especially in the middle of the night. Our truck's radio had enough strength to reach the dispatch and we told them that we would get there as soon as we got around this driver. We had to make sure he was alright. Then, 
we would push the car out of the way if no one was here. So we could get to the original call we were dispatched for. We stepped out of our ambulance and walked cautiously to the car with no driver. Or, for that matter, anybody present. We then made our way to the driver's side and while my partner, who was 130 pounds and 5'3 and also female, steered the car in neutral. I, a 200 pound 6'1 guy, pushed from the trunk to get it moving. As we were working to get the car moved, the situation was really sinking in as to why there would be a car here. Why would someone abandon it with all the doors open? It didn't really make any sense and I began to get an uneasy feeling in my stomach while pushing this car. As we had got the car moved just enough to get our ambulance past one side, we hear a god-awful raspy scream come from about 35 to 40 yards away in the forest. We both froze. My blood ran cold, and all my hair stood straight up. While looking and scanning the woods with our flashlights, we see this man, a raggedy, very thin-looking man in what had to be his late fifties, with long matted gray hair and such a crazy look in his eyes. He was standing at the edge of the woods and was staring at us. The thing that got me really unnerved was a large hunting knife in his right hand. While he was standing there, my partner said she was going to ask if he needed help. I, however, said that was not happening and told her, we will head back to the truck rather quickly, but calmly. As we turned to speed walk to the truck, which is about 200 feet away, this crazy man began sprinting toward us screaming obscenities and saying he was going to make us pay. I screamed to run to the truck and we made a mad dash for it, all while hearing this person with a knife saying, I'll kill you both. We got to the truck and locked the doors. At this point, my partner is crying and I'm shaking as I throw the truck into drive and get around the car. This guy beats on the door and gashed the side of the truck with his knife. We floored it out of there and contact dispatch to explain the full situation and said that PD needs to be sent to find this man so he doesn't have any more victims stopped to try to move the car as we did. This all happened in the span of five to seven minutes at the most. So we make our way to our original call and complete it with no hiccups. This happened roughly three years ago. We have never heard of this happening to anyone else. Police told us they found no car or person only footsteps in the grass on the shoulder off the road leading into the woods. My partner and I are still partners and we can agree. This was one of the scariest things we have ever seen on our job. All we have to say is, be very careful out there. There are crazy people in this world. If you see this swamp dweller, thank you for sharing my story. Stay safe, guys. I'm an EMT. I have been for about three years now. I live and work in Southern California, and this transport happened when I was a brand new EMS worker at four months at a private ambulance company. This company was a private BLS, or basic life support. The company, primarily, meaning we typically transported patients whose care provider had contracts with us. However, sometimes we would run 911 calls at prisons. This is where our story begins. It was late into the night at our station when I heard the tone from my radio. Uh, copy. Wheels up in two. I replied. I walked over to my partner who was sleeping on our rec area couch. Rise, sweet prince. A life needs saving. 
I sarcastically exclaimed. We hopped into the rig, the engine roared to life, and we set off, lights blazing, sirens wailing. As we approached the prison, we killed the lights and sirens and proceeded with routine security checks. Once the guards were satisfied with the search, we were given access and led through the gates and parked outside the medical bay. Gurney and medical equipment in tow, we entered the prison hospital. Now because my partner was the patient person for the last call, I was going to be the primary care provider for this patient. Now, though I had been a new EMT, I had done a lot of prison transports in a small period of time. I've had inmates scream at me, try to bribe me, and yes, even try to kill me. So, as you can imagine, I really wasn't looking for fight night on Unit 221 at 4 in the morning. Regardless, I always prepared for the worst. We were escorted in by guards as usual and led into the main area of the hospital's rooms, which were fitted as cells. I was approached by a nurse who gave me a sheet of paper with his information and most recent vitals. I began to ask for the turnover report and why this patient was required to transport and where we were to be transporting to. The nurse stared blankly for a moment before he said, You're going to Scripps Mercy Shores Hospital, room 329. He's going because he doesn't feel well and he needs some tests done. He shouldn't be a problem for you. Already a few silent alarms were going off in my head. Scripps Mercy Shores is a rich people hospital. I have never heard of anyone other than someone wealthy going there, let alone a prisoner. Second, not feeling well and needs tests don't really paint a great picture of why he needs to go and what I'll be dealing with. And finally, what does he shouldn't be a problem for you even mean? If he's violent or even an at-risk patient, they'd normally just say so getting an actual report on this patient's health and medical condition was like getting blood from a stone. I decided to just relent and go ahead with the transports. The prison guards brought the shackled patient out to us, another oddity. Every other time I'd go in and talk with them before getting them onto the gurney. Standing before me was a tall, rather frail-looking man of dark complexion. His eyes were red and sunken. His overall demeanor was a fearful one. He was constantly shivering. He looked like hell. I introduced myself and began my whole checklist of things to ask and address. We'll call him David. He answered all my questions with a small and quivering voice. When I asked what the problem was tonight, he gave a quick and frightened glance towards the guards and the nurse and said, I don't feel well. His reply sounded forced and rehearsed. Abuse from the staff came to mind first, but I addressed that later. I decided just to go ahead and get this guy going, and I'd wrapped everything up and got him in the ambulance. Before loading him in, I asked him the same question I ask all the MA patients. Be straight with me, and I'll be straight with you. Are you going to cause problem once we get going? He quickly shook his head no, and we were off. When transporting prisoners, one guard accompanies in the ambulance, and another follows in what's called a tail car. This is for everyone's safety and ensuring that if the patient tries anything, an official guard is there to address it. I was busy writing up my report when I realized that between the confusion of the call and the late hour, I had forgotten to get a set of my own vitals. A rookie mistake. We were about halfway to our destination and the patient had remained silent this whole time. I told him I was going to take his vitals and instructed him to give me his arm so I could begin. He did so immediately, like he was trained to obey anything demanded of him, and did so with that haunting look of fear. I wrapped my blood pressure cuff around his arm, and that's when I felt him for the first time. His skin was ice cold. There wasn't even a slight bit of warmth to his skin. 
I asked him if he had needed a blanket, but he declined. I continued with my evaluation. I inflated the cuff, pressed the stethoscope to his brachial artery, and listened for the pulse to come back to show me his blood pressure. It didn't come back. At first, I thought my stethoscope was broken, so I grabbed a spare one. The same result. No pulse. I removed all of my equipment and felt for his pulse myself. Still, nothing. I looked at him and asked if he felt alright. He replied with a simply quiet, I'm okay, thank you. Caught off guard, I grabbed my pulse oximetry, which is used to find a heart rate and blood oxygen level, and put it on his finger. After a moment of the machine reading, the heart rate came back at zero, and the blood oxygen level came back at zero. My heart dropped. I took another set of vitals to see if I misread anything, but they all came back the same. Heart rate, zero. Blood pressure, zero. Blood oxygen level, zero. The only thing consistent was his respiratory rate, which was 24 breaths a minute. A bit higher than the resting rate, but not alarming. I looked back again and asked him once more if he's okay. He looked at me in the eyes and nodded, his head yes, as tears welled up in his eyes, then looked away. He was completely alert. He responded perfectly to all my questions. His eyes were equal and reactive. All signs of good brain function, but no sign of a pulse or any vascular activity. At this point, I don't know what to think. Scientifically, there is no reason this guy should be alive. Even if he had an artificial heart, he would be showing vital signs. But he's right in front of me, alert, breathing, talking when addressed. It makes absolutely no sense. I decided to continue investigating. I listened to his heart with my stethoscope. There was no beating, no thumping, just the muffled sound of his breathing. While I was there, I listened to his lungs, all clear, all normal. I had just finished listening to his chest when we pulled up into our destination. We offloaded him from the ambulance, took him into the room we were instructed to, then he hopped off the gurney and was escorted to his hospital bed by the guards. I began giving my almost unbelievable turnover report to the nurse who surprisingly didn't seem to alarm by it at all. I wrapped up my turnover and then sat down in a nearby chair to finish up my report. As I sat, typing away at my computer, I'm interrupted by the sound of the hospital gurney rolling down the hallway. It was accompanied by four people in surgical gowns who entered the inmate's room with said gurney. After a few minutes, the team of surgical attire emerges from the room. Inmate strapped down to the gurney with the strains, audibly crying, and they wheel him down the hall and around the corner. That's the last I ever saw of him. I told my partner once we were back in the ambulance and he didn't really believe me at first, which I can understand. I joke around a lot, but with the look I gave him, he knew I wasn't kidding. This story may not have been what you were expecting. It's not violent or particularly frightening, but this was hands down the most disturbing call I have ever had. I don't know what I saw. I don't know what I transported. I have my theories, such as experimental treatments being carried out on inmates, but with skin like ice, hardly any vital signs, and such a fearful demeanor. I can only wonder what kind of experiments and what kind of horrors that man had faced. I worked as an EMT for one of the busiest cities when it comes to 911 calls. It was a beautiful summer day and everyone was at the beach enjoying the sun. 
Tones drop and we get to our rig to see that we are responding to a potential infant drowning. We get to the scene and find PD performing CPR. We take over and start doing everything we can. I get this weird feeling to look up mid-compression and I see this little girl I'm performing CPR on standing three feet away from me. She doesn't say anything, but I get a feeling of calmness. One that tells me everything is going to be okay. We get pulses back for a minute and then lose them. By the time the fire engine shows up, we load and go. Fire driving the rig, my partner, a fire medic, and I in the back doing all we can to save this baby girl. We get to the children's hospital, and all three of us are much too invested at this point to just offload and go. We stay and fight the battle with the ER team. It was the moment I chose to leave EMS. We lost her. My heart sank. How could I get a feeling of hope, then lose her? I took it personally to deliver the news to the parents. I broke down and cried with them, holding them, telling them I'm sorry. I get back to the rig after what seems like an eternity, and in the back, in the airway seat, I swear I see the little girl, just sitting there and smiling. I, I don't know. I got that calmness all over again, like she was telling me it's okay. Fast forward about a year. I will admit that I had paranormal activity happening around me in my personal life. Seeing that same ghost since I was 10. Seeing backpacks fly off countertops. Water glasses full being thrown to the ground when there's no breeze. But this whole past year, when I'm stressed or need calmness, she comes and she calms me. I still deal with the fact that I couldn't save her. She was my hardest no save. But I think I gained a guardian angel in her, no matter how crazy that sounds. I was working for an ambulance service, and from day one I would say weird things happened in the hospital and in our building. Things like waking up to doors slamming, or one time waking up after I heard someone say, Wake up! Like two inches from my face, and getting a call a second later. It was more so the feeling of breath hitting my face an instant before the words that freaked me out. Certain parts of the buildings had a weird feeling like you were being watched. Occasionally, things would move out of the corner of your eye. Stuff like that. I know weird things happen around sleep and around lack of sleep for that matter. So those aren't always paranormal experiences, but who knows. This story is different though because it wasn't just me. A few winters ago, I was working and it was snowing. I and the other medic had gone over to the ER to help a trauma. When we got back, we were both in the kitchen area sitting, talking, just letting the adrenaline wear off. Our part of the building was the third floor of a long rectangular building with one long hallway down the middle and stairwells at both ends. So as we are sitting there, we both hear footsteps coming down the long set of stairs that sound like boots, getting louder as it gets to our floor, and then at the door at the end of the hall opening and closing. We were not sure who it was, but other people had keys to the building, so it wasn't that strange. At first... Although it was weird that anyone would be coming up at around 3 in the morning. Our building is separate from the main hospital and is a small facility so not a lot of people around it are there, especially at night. We kept talking expecting to see someone walk by the room or have someone say something. Nothing happened though. After a minute or two I poked my head around to look down the hall. No one was there. We didn't hear anyone, see any footsteps once the door had opened and closed. 
After about a minute or so, we went down the stairs and looked out into the parking lot and out the door. There were no tire tracks, no shoe prints, as I said it was snowing. We went to the other door and there were none there either. It creeped us both out pretty good. The building was old and had been a lot of different things in its days, serving mostly as hospital functions though. As far as I know, no patient rooms were ever there. Certainly, people die in the ambulances. Well, actually no one really dies in an ambulance and in the hospital, but I don't know of any other deaths in the building. I mentioned it to some of my co-workers the next day, and they said they had heard doors slamming and one medic who used to be there swore a locked door on the sleeping room floor would fly open in the middle of the night, especially when he was there alone. As far as anything with the patients goes, I don't think I ever saw anything paranormal. Death is a process and weird things can happen during it, so it can be hard to draw all that exact line between normal and paranormal, I suppose. To give some background, I work the night shift at a local gas station as one of my two jobs. My other job is as a firefighter EMT in town. The station is quiet most nights, with a few truckers coming into the gas station. The occasional late goer will come in to grab some grub before going home and of course, we get the rush of drunk college kids coming in after bars close. It's an easy job and most of the time I'm in the kitchen and I don't have to deal with customers. However, this night that this happened, the other person working at the store decided that she'd rather be in the kitchen and I could stay on the floor, which was fine with me. Honestly, I didn't mind the occasional break from the monotony of the kitchen and I was in a zen mood that night. I figured I could deal with most of the drunks, might even get a good laugh out of the thing. The night went on just like any other night, really. We received the supplies that came in, shelf them up, check out the occasional customer, a truck would come in occasionally and get their stuff checked out. The only weird thing that happened was the phone kept ringing every hour on the hour, and whenever we'd pick up, no one would answer. We figured it was just some sort of tactical error in the system, and that we'd call corporate later and see what they could do. At around 3, when it was not that busy, a trucker came in to pay for his gas. Now, the occasional trucker uses his card where you must type in a lot of information about the company, truck, etc. It's a pain in the ass. But at the time, in the morning, it didn't really bother me. There's nothing else going on. There weren't really enough people around that really held up a line anyways. And most of the truckers were super patient if something went wrong with the machine. The phone started to ring again, just like it had been most of the night, and I was almost tempted not to pick it up. However, on the off chance that it was corporate calling to tell us something was going on or something like that, we needed to pick it up. I grabbed it and asked the trucker for permission. He nodded, not in that big of a hurry, and so I picked up and answered. A grave voice greeted me instead of silence this time, and I was overjoyed for a second. The voice was hard to understand though, very rough, as though he had been smoking far too many ciggies in his day, and with some thick accent that was hard to get over the phone. I wasn't the best with phone conversation as it was. One of my ears was well damaged from an accident from a fire many years back, so I eventually asked my partner to pick up the phone while I dealt with the trucker's fuel. After finally ringing up all of the stuff and him leaving, I looked over at my partner who was still on the phone with this guy. Another bit of background information. 
The gal I'm working with is usually chipper, even this early in the morning. If you're having a rough day, she's the one that you want to work with. She could perk up a morgue. When I looked at her, though, her face was pale and worried. I glanced at her worriedly, and she mouthed the word, help, to me. So I grabbed the phone from her and took over once more, even though I doubted I would be able to understand him. Hello? I was met with silence for a good ten seconds. You're the other girl in the store, aren't you? The weird-looking one? I tensed immediately. I'd been messed with in the past by customers, but that coupled with Susie, my partner, a reaction made me immediately on edge. Maybe. Can I ask what you want, sir? His voice had somehow become clearer, though maybe that was just the adrenaline kicking in. My lip curled, and I felt myself wanting to attack the phone. I'm rather prone to violence first. I'm not proud to admit, and I'm rather protective of those I'm close to on top of that. I don't know what you said to my coworker, but I swear to God if you call again. Hey, hey, let's not be hasty here. And then he said my name, and Susie's. I'm calling the cops, man. If you call again, you will not be happy with the results. He hung up. Then... I found myself on edge for the rest of the night. We called in the cops and then the one that usually stops in to check on things about once every four hours showed up. He took a statement from us both. Apparently, what had Susie so freaked out was what the man had said prior to her. I won't repeat it, mainly because it makes me sick just thinking about it, let alone typing it out. But it was a hell of a lot worse than what he had said to me. Later in the day, Right before my shift ended, the cop pulled us back into the room and asked if we recognized someone from the camera footage. I did, not really, because he seemed like any of the other factory workers around my town from the grainy footage. He was sitting outside the store most of the night, drove around a couple of times to try and go unnoticed. Anything weird happens through the night other than that. We explained the phone calls every hour on the hour, and he noted that he would check on that too. I don't know if they ever caught the guy or even if they could have done anything about it. I don't know if he had done anything illegal per se, but I do know that I never saw him or heard him again. He most definitely won't be happy with the results if he does. The first time I ever had someone dancing naked and bloody on top of a police car during a psychotic breakdown was a truly eye-opening experience to a rookie EMT. That guy got his blood all over me and ruined my new jacket. He kept staring at me maniacally, constantly repeating random numbers and saying, I am Satan, repeatedly. It's kind of weird how quickly that sort of run or call becomes routine. I had another psych patient early in my career that sticks with me out of just pure gross factor. I had another psych patient early in my career that sticks with me for a gross-out factor. She was an Asian lady in her 60s but swore up and down that she was a 15-year-old girl. She would keep saying the most morbid and grotesque things over and over. I don't remember the exact details but she did talk about being, um, you know, assaulted repeatedly and having her skull caved in that morning. Then, she started going on about how I'd been bleeding out of my you know what, every single day for the last three years. I've asked her if she was currently bleeding because vaginal hemorrhaging is a legitimate medical complaint 
and who knows what's actually happening. She very well could have actually been assaulted. At that point, she removed a bloody maxi pad and threw it at me, smacking me square in the chest. My partner erupted in laughter and said, <laughs> Dude, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. On a Halloween about four years ago, I was working a shift with a good buddy of mine, and we got a run for an unknown medical. We were a couple of cocky mid-twenty-somethings. On the way up the elevator, we got caught up in an argument over an A's versus Giants Bay Area baseball game. We almost blew off the security guard when he was opening the door to some random apartment. Oh, she's definitely dead, the guard said, and we were instantly like, what? Usually, the cops get to this sort of thing before us. Plus, we had no idea a dead body was involved. Yet, there she was, reclined in a lazy boy with her feet all the way up in a position of comfort. Her eyes were rolled back and mouth agape, just like in the movies. Over her head was a translucent plastic bag taped neatly around her neck. I don't know if it was the combination of reclined death in a lazy boy, a nonchalant plastic bag, a possible murder, or the fact that it was Halloween, but that was a creepy scene. I think we had a shooting and a stabbing on that shift as well. In general, the creepiest calls for me are hangings. Something about a body just hanging listlessly in the dark. The last one I had to go on was where we were dispatched to... We didn't use our lights or sirens, which in itself was weird. We ended up at a Safeway with a bunch of cops who had no idea where the hanging was. Apparently, the guy who called it in casually shopping in the produce section, this guy mentions to us a body was at the construction site across the street. We told the guy to show us where it was. Surely enough, there was a well-executed hanging about five feet off the ground. Good quality rope rigged over a facade and tied to a cement block on the other side of the chain link fence. Seeing a dead body hanging in the dead of night is one of those things that just stays with you. You keep it in your back pocket so you can tell the story later when someone asks about the job. I have had a few other stories I wanted to share, but this will turn into a giant wall of text faster than I expected. Thank you for sharing this. In some weird way, it's kind of nostalgic to think about the old times and shifts. This past September, I had taken a road trip down to Myrtle Beach with my family. It was myself, my mother, my sister, her husband, and their two kids. We had used my car and both my sister and husband's car to transport everything and all of us. We had rented a beach house for a little over a week and had a pretty great time. I was in the middle of a difficult point in my life and struggling with employment and being in between jobs and having just started two new fresh jobs. I was a little low on funds and worried about making my car payments and the like, so I opted to head home two days early with my car so I could try and get some more hours at work. My family expressed being nervous as I planned to leave after dinner and drive through the night to get home. I consoled them and told them that I would be okay and I'd be up all night. I'd head straight home and only stop for gas and food as needed. I'm a pretty good driver. A tad impatient, so I tend to go until I absolutely had to stop and take a break. However, this would be a 12-hour trip, and I knew I would need breaks. So, I made a point to stop at every rest stop and at least go out and stretch, so I stayed awake and didn't get too sore. As I was going through West Virginia, if you're not aware, these rest stops here are very secluded. The visitor centers and everything, they're not very... 
how can I say this, popular. Especially when you're heading north from the south. Going through the mountains, I stopped at a visitor center because they advertised having a fast food joint and I had to pee like a racehorse. This was sometime very late at night, maybe between 1am and 3am, I'm not entirely sure. Side note, that sent shivers down my spine after what happened. I like to drive barefoot, so keep that in mind. So, I pulled in. I noticed the buildings with the fast food were closed, so I drove around the lot and parked under a streetlight in front of the visitor center, so I could at least use the restroom. Leaning out of my car door, I took my time putting my shoes on to walk inside. Having looked around and not seeing anything out of the ordinary, I checked my phone and grabbed my wallet before standing up to walk in, making sure my car horn beeped to signal my doors were locked. Walking towards the center, I saw a man in a white hoodie standing at the edge of the sidewalk leading into the center. I didn't think much of it, why would I, until I passed him and got a very weird vibe. For some reason, I glanced to my left as I turned to face forward and noted another man sitting at the benches that were on the other side of a tall, thin set of bushes. Instantly, I thought, nope, 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 nope. I went in, peed, and before I walked out of the bathroom, I called my roommate. As dumb as it was, because he was a good four to six hours away, I just felt safer giving the information to someone. I gave him a quick rundown of my situation and made him stay on the phone with me. I started to walk out and I couldn't see the man at the front of the sidewalk anymore. I glanced to my now right and saw both men standing next to a bench. Facing forward, I saw a couple walking in presumably to use the restroom as well. I had an impulse to ask them to walk with me, but my paranoia kicked in because I knew something was wrong somewhere in my situation, and I didn't want to ask, thinking that they might know the men. Walking briskly to my car, I explained to my roommate what the men were doing and that they were by the benches now. Daring the smallest of peaks over my shoulder again, I saw the man in the white hoodie start making his way towards me. I told my roommate. Walking a few more paces forward, I looked back again and saw his pace had quickened. At this point, I told my roommate he's following me to my car, and I booked it. I thankfully had a key fob, got my key out, and already had my door unlocked and my car fully ready to get out of there in just a moment's time. Not daring another glance back, I threw my car in reverse and gunned it backwards before going back into drive and sped off. I didn't even stop to put my seatbelt on until I was already at the exit, leaving the parking lot. I didn't look back one time. I honestly was pretty freaked out. I'm pretty sure I never stopped until I got to the next toll road and filed a report and the workers called for the state troopers to head over there to check things out. I didn't stop shaking for hours and I refused to get out of my car until I was home. I horrified myself with the thought of, if those guys had paid attention and made their move more quickly, they could have incapacitated me before I even got to my car. I don't know. I was pretty creeped out, and I'm happy that nothing worse happened. Hi, Swamp Dweller. This story occurred last October and was my encounter with one of Texas's oldest unsolved mysteries, the Marfa Lights. It may not be as terrifying as many of the other stories submitted here, but it was a unique experience for me. On some nights, as you look across the West Texan desert outside the town of Marfa, you may see strange orbs of red, white, or yellow lights floating above the desert floor. 
you may only see one or two, or sometimes several in the air at one time. Sometimes they hover perfectly still before blinking out, or they move, even shoot across the night sky. They are unpredictable in nature. Stories and sightings of the lights go well back into the 1800s. There are even Native American legends about the mysterious lights, and many researchers have run studies to try and determine their cause. The leading theory is that the unique atmospheric conditions cause headlights from the cars to be reflected in the sky, but a lot of people don't really buy that. While on a road trip with some friends from university out west to experience the beauty of the Chihuahuan Desert, we decided it would be nice to visit the area. About 10 miles outside of Marfa, we were staying in a nice little hotel. One of my favorite hobbies was going bird watching, so I brought my big spotting scope on the trip, which I planned to use to see the lights better. We arrived about a half an hour after the sun set. If you've ever been that far into the desert, it gets dark incredibly dark. The only source of light was the dim lights on the steps of the viewing area, the stars, and a single cell tower out in the distance. I set up my scope and sighted in on the cell tower. We didn't have to wait long before a white small light peered on the horizon. It moved slowly across the horizon before blinking out. Then another one appeared, and another. Sometimes they would go out after a minute, other times they would be visible for five or more minutes. Whenever I would focus my scope on one, I wasn't able to see any discernible features other than a small blip of light. Another strange thing was that whenever I would crank the zoom on my scope, the lights would never seem any larger than when looking at them with the naked eye. We stayed out for about an hour, and I was absolutely entranced by the little lights, and that wasn't the only time we had seen them on that road trip. A couple of days later when we were returning from a big hike in Big Bend, it was a long drive back so it was dark by the time we were getting back to Marfa. Driving through the desert at night is surreal. You can go a hundred miles and hardly see a thing. It's like the world drops out of existence beyond the reach of your headlights, and when we passed the viewing platform that we were at a couple of nights before, we saw about a half dozen white, red, and yellow lights way out in the desert. The most we had ever seen at once. Where it got weird was when I turned around in my seat. I saw a little reddish light behind us. There was only one single one, so I don't think it was a car. From my best guess, I'd say it was about a half mile behind us, maybe 25 to 50 feet off the ground. I thought it could have been a motorcycle, but then it started moving perpendicular to the straight road we were on. It followed us for probably about 10 minutes or so, and from what I could tell, it kept the same distance the entire time. And then, out of nowhere... It suddenly disappeared. We all said stuff along the lines of, well, that was weird, and none of us had ever seen anything like it. And two of the people in the car had been out there multiple times and seen the lights many times. We didn't feel threatened by it, I guess, but it was a cool experience that not many people have had while seeing the lights. If any of y'all are in West Texas, be sure to stop by Marfa and see if you can catch a glimpse of these weird lights. People have said they're ghosts, aliens car lights, or even electricity caused by rocks under the area. But I really hope that the mystery of the Marfa lights is never truly solved. We need a few more mysteries in the world. I'm from California, and way back when I was on the college search, I realized that I'd likely go out to the East Coast if I wanted to play field hockey. 
My mom and I organized a road trip through Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island to hit a bunch of different schools in a short amount of time. One of those schools was Ithaca College. It was a last-minute decision to stop there, so we didn't have much time to explore the general area afterwards. We had been told by multiple people that the waterfalls in the area were beyond gorgeous and worth the stop, so my mom and I decided to swing by one before we left for Pennsylvania. We put Ithaca Falls in our rental car GPS, and it brought us to this red curb loop with an old, run-down overlook. This overlook was down a hill and through some trees, so my mom didn't really want to leave the car on the red curb. She encouraged me to go down and check it out on my own, and I did. The first time I went down, I was sure to be observant of everything around me. I didn't want any random people or any animals in the woods sneaking up on me. I went to the ledge to take some pics, sat and listened for the water, then turned to go back up. When I turned, I got this odd feeling as if something was wrong, like I was being watched or something was standing behind me. I got incredibly uncomfortable and looked around and saw nothing, and nothing really appeared to be out of the ordinary. So I calmly headed back up the hill. I got in the car, showed my mom the photos, and realized I never took a video. My mom suggests I go back down to get a video. We've got time. So, again, I go back down. The second time I go down, I feel a little less happy. I was down a slope, so my mom couldn't see me. I felt more alone and exposed than the time before, and that sinking feeling of being watched kept growing. I got to the edge to take the video with shaking hands. Now I'm feeling like I need to get out of there. This intense sense of urgency was washing over me. I turn around to go back up and some force stops me dead in my tracks. I'm frozen there, like a rabbit or a deer frozen in headlights. I literally cannot get myself to move another foot forward. I can't take a step, I'm just stuck there. An overwhelming sense of dread sweeps over my body once again and presses on my chest. Just such dread. I literally feel like I'm going to die at any moment. I still can't move and sit there terrified as I feel a massive presence come up behind me. This thing felt big and so real, and yet I couldn't get away. I'm stuck and helpless. I keep standing there too scared to turn around and unable to move when the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. This thing, this person, whatever it is, bends down toward me and right next to my ear says, I kid you not. When I heard that, I ran faster than I ever have in my entire life. I tore up that hill, still too afraid to see what was behind me. I got in the car, slammed the door, and just like out of a movie, I yelled, Drive! My mom looks at me in disbelief and goes, Is everything okay? I just repeat, Just drive! She told me later that I was pale white and that I had the sense of urgency in my voice that told her that she had to get away from whatever I feared. What spooks me out so much about this story is that I never turned around. It felt so real that it could have been a, a person or who knows what, but I was right against that overlook. I don't think anyone could have snuck up behind me, and I've also gotten that sense of dread visiting other haunted places. I really feel that it was something paranormal. As for the yoo-hoo, it didn't sound male or, or female, I mean, I don't know, it sounded like something as if it was trying to scare me or intimidate me. I would love to know your thoughts in the comments.
Rachel, Mindy, and Nathan were excited to finish their freshman year of college. They decided to take a road trip to an old campground that is known for its beautiful scenery. It is well off the beaten path, but so is anything else worth seeing. Nathan was driving as they turned off the main road. Well, say goodbye to civilization, Nathan said. I know, isn't this awesome? Finally, no more assignments for a while, Mindy answered. Right, Rachel? Mindy turned to see Rachel fast asleep in the back seat. I guess being on the Dean's list is tiring, Nathan laughingly said. Mindy was staring out the window as it got quiet. As they drove deeper into the country, Mindy noticed the old house off in the distance. Well, I didn't think anyone lived out here, Mindy said quietly. They don't, Nathan replied. There's a house right there. Looks creepy though, Mindy said. That's because it is, Nathan replied. What do you mean? Mindy asked. Off this old highway a few hundred yards down a dirt driveway, people who live around here know to stay away. The house has a bad history. Everyone has seen it. Everyone and anyone who has crossed the path from going from point A to point B has looked to the side at night and seen that lonely dark house routing by itself. Although over the years it has gotten a fair amount of attention, said Nathan. What kind of bad history? Mindy asked. Nathan turned and looked at Mindy in her eyes and said with a seductive smile, Do you really want to know? Mindy laughed and answered back, I sure do. Nathan sat back and took a deep breath. I did a little research. In 1924, a family lived there. Apparently the father fell on hard times and went absolutely crazy. He killed his family, then brought their bones into the cellar with a shovel, and, uh, you know, nobody ever saw them again. Or him. So, he just closed the cellar door, and that was it, Mindy said. Yes, with a shovel. <laughs> God knows what he did down there, said Nathan. It was getting dark, and Mindy looked at the house as Nathan pulled over to use the bathroom. The setting sun cast an eerie light on the backdrop of the house. As Nathan got back and Misty looked at him, and as Nathan reached for the ignition, Mindy stopped him. No, I want to see it, Mindy said. Nathan looked back at Rachel to see that she was still sleeping. Mm, let's do it, Nathan said as he reached for Mindy. Mindy pushed him away. No, I'm serious. I want to see the house. The inside of it. I want to see what happened, Mindy said as she looked into his eyes worriedly. Nathan could not believe it. You're serious? You want to see what's inside? He asked. Yes, Mindy said as she held his arm. Nathan looked down at her and back up at her. Then, Nathan looked at his watch and over at the house. Okay, let's wake up Rachel. Mindy woke Rachel up and told her that they were going to do something awesome as Nathan got the backpacks ready to be carried. Mindy told Rachel she could stay in the van if she wanted to, and Rachel tried to talk her out of it. Are you crazy? Why do you want to go see it? Mindy told her she had to know what happened. Why don't you just, you know, go look for police records or something? Besides, that was a hundred years ago. What if there's some crazy person in there? Mindy rolled her eyes and began walking down the driveway as Nathan caught up with her. Rachel looked around as it was turning into night and hurried to catch up with them. As they got to the house, a loud thud came from inside. See? There's someone in there. They know we're here, Rachel said. It's an old house, probably rotting wood falling, Nathan said as he turned to Mindy and smiled. They reached the front door 
As Nathan tried the knob, to their surprise, the door opened. It was dark and dusty. They couldn't see anything, so Nathan used his flashlight from his camping gear. They walked around examining things. Kids' toys, baby clothes, a straw hat, a tobacco pipe. Looks like they just up and left, Nathan said. I guess nobody bothered to try to clean up. They just let it all sit in here until the house collapses, huh? Yeah, well, they probably figured nobody would come in here, Rachel snapped. Let's stay together, Nathan said as they made their way to the back of the house. When they made it to the back room, there was another thud. Okay, guys, seriously, let's get out of here. That wasn't falling wood. Rachel turned to Nathan. Nathan, please, let's go. Make Mindy come on. Rachel pleaded. Nathan looked at her and then looked down at the ground. He looked up again. You're right. This is not our business. We shouldn't be here, he said. Rachel let out a sigh of relief, but just as she thought she had won, Mindy found something. Hey, guys, look. The cellar. Let's go down there and see what the father did. Maybe we will find something that was left behind. Mindy said in a trance-like voice, Uh, Earth to Mindy, hello. Uh, no, we're not going into the cellar, okay? Rachel argued. If you're so scared, you can go back to the van. Mindy snapped. Rachel took her up on that offer and hurried back to the van. I'll wait in the van, but don't take forever. She spoke. Mindy assured her that they would be out soon. Mindy and Nathan looked at the cellar door and then at each other. Nathan slowly reached for the door and pushed it open. A dark stairway led to an area that was pitch black. Nathan shined his light down and they slowly took it step by step until they were at the bottom. Mindy grabbed Nathan by the arm as he shone his light around. There's a shovel, he spoke. I bet that's the same one the father used to bury his family down here. But where is he? They slowly walked around, shining the flashlight around as it revealed more clues. Nathan shined his light on the mound of dirt. Look, Mindy, I bet these mounds are where he buried them, he spoke. Mindy covered her mouth with her hand as she walked around the mound. Look, Nathan, a mound, but it looks unfinished. Where's all the dirt? Mindy said confusingly. Nathan walked over to shine the light directly on it. He got a creepy feeling. There's no dirt around it, because that wasn't dug from the outside. It was dug from underground. Nathan stepped back and turned around to desperately shine his light around. His light began flickering. Oh no, the flashlight's going dead, he said as he repeatedly hit it to try to get the light back on. Each time it died. Mindy started sobbing. Nathan, let's get out of here. Something is down here, she said. She held his arm. The flashlight died for good and it was pitch black. Suddenly, the cellar door slams shut. Nathan and Mindy stopped moving. R rachel Nathan said. It was dead quiet. Rachel, is that you? He said again. After a moment of quiet, Mindy screamed. Rachel, it's not funny. Open the door. It was pitch dark and quiet as Mindy and Nathan stood there in a cellar, not knowing who was there or where to go. Suddenly, Something grabbed Nathan and Mindy and pulled them by their legs, dragging them underground as Mindy screamed. Rachel was sitting in the van when she heard a faint scream in the distance. She got out of the van and ran into the house screaming. Mindy, Mindy, where are you? She followed the screams to the cellar door as she tried to open it but couldn't. 
The scream from the cellar stopped and Rachel covered her mouth to try to stop her panting from being heard. Rachel heard footsteps coming up the stairs from the other side of the door. Rachel ran out of the house to the van and jumped in the driver's seat. She reached down to the ignition and let out a sigh of relief as she realized the keys were in there. She turned the van crank over as she turned her head to the house. The door to the house slowly closed as the van started. Rachel was just sobbing as she jammed the gas pedal and drove away. Rachel reported what happened to the police and filed a missing persons report on Mindy and Nathan. The local authorities searched the house and the cellar but found no traces of them. The only thing they found were a flashlight. Although one of the policemen thought he heard a faint screaming coming from deep underground, when he asked his partner if they could hear it too, they claimed they could not. Rachel told the police about the footsteps and the door closing as she left. Nobody knows what happened to the bodies of Mindy and Nathan, and Rachel was convinced that they are still down there. And if you go to that house and stand in the cellar, you will hear their cries for help. My husband and I love to go driving. We prefer road trips, but on the weekends or nights when we have nothing better to do, we go cruising and just drive around. We prefer smooth and not busy roads. On this night, we were bored and decided to go cruising. We went up north to a small town about a half hour from the city where the roads are curvy and smooth. This town is close to the mountains, and if you follow this main street all the way up north, it starts driving up to a mountain. It's about 9pm and there are very few cars on the road, and since it's a small cute town, it's already pretty empty. But we keep going north away from the houses and stores and eventually to where the roads start curving uphill. We drive up for about 15 minutes, and it's pitch black when we see some blinking lights. As we get closer, we see that a truck is on the side of the road, facing us. I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. All the way out there, in the middle of nowhere, and a stranded truck on the side of the road just is not a good mix. As he slowly approaches closer, I tell my husband it's probably for the best to turn back. I had a bad feeling, but at this point we are pretty much to the truck. As he pulls up next to the truck, a young blonde guy, maybe in his late 20s, comes around and gets next to our window. I get such a bad vibe by this, and I tell my husband not to put the window down. I think he also gets a weird feeling, so he listens. He kind of just loudly asks what's wrong and the guy just says something is wrong with his truck and he might need a hand. His phone is dead. My husband asks what happened, but the guy insists on showing him and to come on and take a look. He says it in a very friendly tone and even calls him bro and says he's so glad we showed up. My husband says, you know what, I won't be much help. I know nothing about cars, but let me call for help. He knows a lot about cars though, but that's not the point. The guy is insisting and gets visibly upset. I'm looking back at the truck and I thought I caught movement inside of the truck. I tell my husband, Dean, I think we should go. Now. He probably saw the look of fear in my face because he put the car in reverse. But as he did, the guy is now behind our car, acting stressed out, rubbing his face and kind of pacing. So my husband decides to go forward instead then. We drive up for maybe two more minutes trying to find a place to turn around since the road is just very narrow. The road turns to dirt, and there's little space on the side. So, even if we wanted to be quiet, you could hear the car turning around from a mile away. I'm absolutely dreading going back that way now, and our phones have no signal at all. In my mind, I know that this could really be someone with car problems. 
Maybe a friend is in the truck too. He never said he was alone. I just couldn't ignore that bad feeling in my gut though. We soon reached the area where the truck had been, but there's no truck at all. We drive down maybe another five minutes, but there's no trace of the truck. We should have passed it by now. Like I said, we didn't drive up too far to begin with. I am both relieved and terrified that this truck is no longer there. If it really had broken down, how did they get it to work in such short time? Calming myself down, I'm telling my husband, hey, maybe they really did get it to work. Maybe it turned on suddenly and they were able to drive off. Suspicious, but not impossible. As we kept driving through and the roads are straightening out, we noticed far off the trail, the truck with all the lights off parked on the side again. We noticed movement in the bed of the truck. I say out loud, why did they turn off all the lights? I think they think we are still too far away to see them, but we see two figures get on the other side of the truck and crouch down as if hiding. We get closer and my husband floors it. As we drive past, two men get up. One of them, the guy we had spoken to and someone else with a very surprised look in their face. One of them runs behind us for a bit and we see him get tinier in the back. I keep looking back terrified, but it's dark back there now when suddenly I see the headlights turn on in the truck and they start driving in our direction very fast. My husband keeps going fast and eventually we lose the headlights. I keep looking back for the rest of the way so scared that they're somehow still following us. Maybe they turned off their headlights again, and I just can't see them. Anyway, after driving for a very long time back to the city, we convince ourselves no one is following us. We do call the non-emergency line and give them a description of what we saw. We didn't get the plates of the truck, unfortunately. It was all so fast, and all the fear that I felt, I didn't really think about it. We just gave a description of the guy we saw, the type of truck it was, etc. But there's really nothing that could be done. I realized this could all be rationalized, but in the moment, we were filled with terror and fear. Being out there in the middle of nowhere and all the possibilities. They could have been armed. They could have put their truck sideways and left us with nowhere to go. They could have put something on the road to rip up our tires. And even though it could have all have some normal explanation, there are still so many questions. Why couldn't they tell us what was wrong? How did the truck work so fast again? Why did they turn off all of their lights? Why did they hide? It's been about a year, and it's just a creepy experience now. We still go cruising, but we usually just stick to more civilized areas, at least for nighttime cruises. I experienced this back when I was 14. Now I am 23 years old. Back then I lived on the outskirts of a small town in Montana. Behind my home there was a forest. Now, I had never stepped a foot into those woods until that day. The only time I'd ever even gotten close to that forest was when I was tasked with walking my family dog Charlie. Now, Charlie was a big dog. I had never seen him cower before. On one of our walks, I heard a noise in the woods. It was the sound of a branch snapping. Uh, occasionally, whenever I took walks with Charlie, I would keep hearing these noises. One thing to mention, though, is that whenever I took Charlie out during the day, nothing would happen. But during dusk or dawn or even nighttime, I would always hear this noise. The day I decided to head in was an extraordinary day because it was my 14th birthday. 
After everyone was in bed, I had snuck our Charlie, and we navigated our way through. Or, well, tried to. We ended up getting lost and came upon an abandoned shed. Then, the last thing I expected happened. Charlie started whimpering. That was never a good sign. I had wondered if there was someone there, but I couldn't see anybody. I didn't think I would need any form of protection, so I didn't have any. And then, I heard the sounds. A crunch here and a snap there, and the animals went quiet. I was terrified, so all I could do was run to the shed and hide. Something got closer. I heard the leaves crunching. It was the only way I could tell how close it was. Then, a loud bang resonated through the woods. It was walking on top of the roof. I couldn't stop shaking, but I'd like to think that Charlie could tell how scared I was because he started licking me. Around five or ten minutes later, it hopped off the roof and I peeked out the nearest window. There was a human-like creature out there. Grotesque, with long limbs, pale skin like the moon, jagged bones and joints. It was extremely thin. Its spine was protruding underneath its skin. Instead of bumps on the spine, they were like tips of a knife. I felt sick to my stomach, and I almost hurled right then and there. I felt like I was seeing something I shouldn't. I managed to see its face. It was roundish. Its eyes were beady and black. They looked soulless, but I'm not completely sure. They were glassy like the eyes of a doll. Lifeless, and soon it had started to walk away, but not without turning back to me and letting out this demonic roar, like the roar of a lion mixed with the caw of a raven. I think it knew I was there. I don't know what prevented it from killing me, but whatever it was, I'm eternally grateful. Remember, if there are woods near you and you hear strange sounds, never forget that there are things out there that won't be as merciful as it was to me. If anybody knows what this may have been, please let me know in the comments down below. I'm incredibly curious. Hello, Swamp Dweller. Thank you for reading my story. I must start by saying this story falls about average or maybe even below average on the scary meter, but it was such a strange event that I found it discussion worthy. So maybe some of you will rate it high on that strange meter and maybe some of you will just think it's lame. I lived in the third house at the end of a dead end road just on the outside of a small town in Ohio. Many strange and dark things happened there. Maybe I will share those stories some other time. But one night, I was left perplexed by something I saw from my bedroom window. This old house did not have central air. Although I had a window unit in my bedroom, I'd like to shut it off and open the windows on cool, breezy nights. I loved listening to the sounds of nature. Surrounding the dead-end road were many miles of woods where I would see coyotes, raccoons, possum, and deer. These were everyday sightings. There were many times throughout many nights where the woods would go silent. I think most of you know when the woods go silent, there is likely a predator of some kind nearby. One night, I had my windows open. It's after midnight sometime, and I'm just browsing Pinterest on my phone when the woods go silent. 
It seemed like it was five minutes or so before I noticed how long everything had been silent. You could even hear a pin drop. Normally, when the woods go silent, it was never for more than a couple of minutes. Being curious and wondering if coyotes were sniffing around my front porch again, I got up and looked out my bedroom window that faces the front of the house. Now, at this time I can't remember if I had started listening to these kind of podcasts or not, so I'm not sure if I had ever heard the stories of wendigos or not-deer creatures. Listening to one of the Swamp Dweller podcast shows made me remember this event and realize what I saw may have been one of these creatures. For context, the road at the front of my house was paved and went straight until it wide off into our driveway to the left and the other portion went straight ahead to the right and wide turned into a dirt and gravel road. Then, I looked out the window. Everything was silent and I was surprised to see what appeared to be a very large and lonely buck walking down the middle of the road towards the dirt road and straight ahead. I watched for it, finding it strange that it was all alone. Normally when you see one deer, there are at least a few close by. As I watched it walking towards the dirt road, I thought it looked strange. First off, I'll be honest, I'm no hunter, but this buck looked massive. Two or three times larger than what might be considered average. Not only was it large, but the way it walked, like it was being worked like a string puppet, or like it was in a trance, or maybe even how a soldier would march. It never turned and looked at me. I never made a sound. I just stood there, rubbing my eyes trying to figure out what the heck I was seeing. I was 100% sober during this, just a heads up. Before it reached the point where I couldn't be able to see it from my window, I looked around. I'm not sure why. Maybe I was trying to see any other deer to rationalize what this was. This was only for a second, and when I looked back, it was gone. There was no way it could have left my line of sight so quickly. That's when I, that's when I realized I never heard its footsteps. It never made a sound. Just the woods came back to life right then and there, and I almost jumped out of my skin from being so spooked. I just stood at my window, feeling bewildered. What the hell did I just see? Whatever it was was definitely not a deer. This thing made the forest, which was usually very loud at night, go dead quiet. The way it walked, its size, how it just disappeared. The whole situation was just so bizarre. I thought about telling my roommate what I saw, but he was not a sensitive person and not a big believer in the unknown or the paranormal. Although a year or two later, when the house was being renovated, he started to believe... But hey, that's another story entirely. So there it is, my potential not-deer sighting. Like I said, it's not the scariest story, but it's a head-scratcher. Do any of you have a similar story? Can anyone tell me what they think I saw, or what they think the not-deer was doing marching down the road just to disappear? I feel like if I had made a sound or engaged with it, the situation may have escalated. I was always under the impression that there might be a portal on the property for spirits or unknown things to come and go through. Is that what the not-deer was doing? Just taking the portal back to hell for a dinner engagement with Satan? This story takes place in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. For those who are not aware, 
the Appalachian mountain range is approximately 480 million years old. And I've always wondered, while hiking in the park, about what kind of animals once roamed the hills we hike today. In the summertime, the dense vegetation and the abundant rhododendrons can take you back to a prehistoric age when the dinosaurs would have foraged among the same hills that hikers now casually walk, basking in the unparalleled beauty that is the Smokies. This event happened in late December, when the leaves fall off the deciduous trees, opening the hills to your eyes, allowing you to see the contours of the land as you hike. Me and my girlfriend were staying in the small town of Weir's Valley, which is approximately 45 minutes west of the bustling tourist trap of Gatlinburg. We'd stayed in Gatlinburg in years past and decided that this year we wanted a small cabin, far from the normal hustle and bustle of the late December tourist rush. Many of the locals spitefully call this period from Christmas to New Year's Hell Week. Knowing this, we decided to stop at a small hiking store and inquired about a day hike that would take us far into the backcountry. They pulled out a map detailing the western end of the park and showed us multiple trails that would fit our description. We ended up settling on a trail that was about four miles one way, with a massive waterfall as the reward at the end of the trail. We arrived at the trailhead at about nine in the morning, and there was only about one car there already. Perfect. It was an elderly couple getting their packs ready for their hike, and we were excited at the lack of hikers. As our goal for the day was to try and not see a human being for the entire hike, the first half of the hike was entirely uneventful. We reached the waterfall after about two hours or so, and sat down and took a lunch break before departing back towards the trailhead. Before I continue the story, I want to make a note that we had not seen a single person the entire hike so far. We had not even seen so much as a plane flying overhead. That's why we turned the corner on the trail and we froze in our places. There was a girl walking alone about 50 yards ahead of us. Now, normally it's not uncommon to see people hiking alone, but they typically look the part. They usually have a hiking pack, hiking shoes, and they'll almost always acknowledge you and ask you how your day is before you go in your separate ways. Not, not this girl. First and foremost, she did not look like she belonged out there. She looked like she was about 15 or 16 years old, and she did not have a bag or any water. She was wearing tennis shoes, which was odd considering that this rugged trail demanded heavy hiking boots. We were shocked to see her out this far by herself, and we were even more disturbed that we didn't see her before turning the corner on the trail. She essentially appeared out of nowhere. After me and my girlfriend exchanged concerned looks, we decided to continue down the trail as normal as we didn't want this girl to turn around and see us just standing there and spook her. We made ourselves known as best as we could by kicking rocks with our boots and talking to each other. This girl didn't turn around and acknowledge us or even respond to us one time, even when we said hello. After about 50 yards of following her at a distance, we reached a creek crossing with a rudimentary path of dry rocks as the only way to cross. She put her arms out to balance herself, and we both noticed that when she put her arms up, it didn't look right. Unless you had terrible balance, there was no reason to balance yourself on this little creek crossing. Calling it a creek is almost giving it too much credit, as it was more like a gentle stream coming off the hill that crossed the trail and flowed to the river below. The water at its deepest was no more than six inches, 
and if you had halfway decent hiking boots, you could simply walk through the water without getting your feet wet. Wanting to be considerate of our fellow hiker, we decided to wait behind her as she arduously crossed the creek. She took way more time than she needed to cross, and it felt like she was deliberately walking slow to creep us out. We crossed the creek in about 30 seconds' time after watching her take two or three minutes. Keep in mind, this creek was maybe 15 feet long at that, and as I mentioned, maybe six inches deep. I decided to cross before my girlfriend, because I had a nauseating feeling in the pit of my stomach about the entire situation, and I wanted to put something between her and my girlfriend. Because I had my eyes glued on this girl, I wasn't paying attention to where I was walking, and my foot slipped from the rock and fell into the water, making a very loud splash. Even though this girl was less than 20 feet ahead of us, she still did not turn around and acknowledge us. After me and my girlfriend crossed the creek, we could see that shortly ahead were a set of switchbacks going down the mountain. We decided to stop and put some distance between us and the girl. She was walking at an incredibly slow pace, and we waited for a couple of minutes before we saw that she had gone around the corner down the first switchback. Me and my girlfriend had a brief conversation about what the heck just happened, and we collected ourselves and continued down the trail. We didn't think anything much of it, we just tried to continue going without being unnerved any further. We thought that was the case, and so, when we turned down the first switchback and saw something terrible, well, we saw nothing at all. The girl had vanished, unless she took off at a sprint as soon as she turned the corner. We should have seen her. The switchback was very gradual, and we could clearly see the next five or six switchbacks below us. The leaves were gone off the trees, allowing us to see every foot of the trail below. Even if she started running, we would have heard her. The main river was about 500 feet below us, and the rushing water was barely audible from where we were standing. She either vanished, hid behind a tree from us, or somehow managed to sprint a quarter mile down the mountain in complete silence away from us. We had absolutely no idea what to think, so we once again stopped to collect ourselves. We were terrified and were not sure whether to go back up the mountain or continue down as planned. After a hurried deliberation, we decided to proceed down the trail as normal. We never saw her. As we reached the trailhead, we ran into a group of hikers and we figured we'd ask them if they saw a teenage girl hiking along without a backpack. They gave us a strange look and said we were the first people they'd seen on the trail all day. We simply thanked them and continued as to not scare them. I've always heard of paranormal things happening in the Smokies, from Bigfoot to Skimwalkers to a group of wild mountain people living primitively within the park. I've always entertained these stories because who doesn't love a good ghost story? I've never anticipated having an encounter of my own in the woods. The scariest thing to me about the encounter all these years later, though, is that we never saw her face. My name is Savannah, and I'm currently 18 years old. This story happened when I was 5 or 6. I was incredibly young, so it was hard to remember what age I was. This story tells my very first paranormal experience. I will be sharing my other stories that will also hopefully be read to the swamp. My mom and I listen to your episodes every night before going to bed, and we love every story that's read. So I figured it's about time I put some of my stories on the channel too. 
At the time this happened, I lived in a small town called White Hills in Arizona. It was a town that was pretty much in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by desert for as far as you could see. I shared a room with my two sisters. In the room was a bunk bed on one wall and a regular bed on the other side of the room. We had three rooms in the house, but the spare room was always way too freezing to sleep in at night. My oldest sister also complained about the house being weird. We had clothes that were hung up at the end of the bunk bed. She would always say how they would move on their own. I even witnessed this once or twice myself. It was terrifying because I knew it was not my sisters tricking me when it would happen. They would all be asleep. Between our beds was our dresser with a hermit crab tank on top. Across from the tank was the door. When the door was open, you could see the wall to the hallway. When the crab lights were on, the light reflected against the hallway wall. Down a bit to the right was a bathroom that was between our room and the freezing spare bedroom. It was late at night and the door was open. I was looking at the wall contemplating on if I should get up to use the bathroom. I feared the dark since I was very young at the time. I had enough courage to eventually get up and slowly walk down to the hallway. When I looked to the right, which showed the living room, it had a little bit of a light showing through because of the huge windows that were next to my parents' door. I could see something moving. It looked like a huge dog. I remember it being way bigger than a dog, though. Much bigger than the one I had at the time. And it was sniffing around the living room. I was staring at it. Though, once it spotted me, I saw these piercing yellow eyes. I saw it started walking towards me, kind of like in a trot. It was weird, because it looked like it was running with the time slowed. It was kind of blurry, as it was in the speed between walking and running. I ran back into the room and hid under the covers, because, you know, for some reason, kids believe hiding under the covers will keep you safe and protect you. For some reason, though, I didn't think to close the door behind me. I was terrified out of my mind. I waited, terrified under those covers. Everyone was asleep except for me. It was just me and the power and swirls of the hermit crabs. And the light from the tank didn't make me feel much better. But being able to see just a little bit more helped me feel brave. Eventually, I lifted my head from the covers to see a shadow on the wall that was not of a dog. It was a grown man in a suit, a hat, and it looked like they were holding a briefcase. It looked as if it was walking closer to my door. The shadow on the wall getting bigger as it walked closer. I ducked my head under the covers again and closed my eyes the tightest I could. There was no sound throughout the house. My mom did not know about this story until we moved out of the house a few years later. Eventually, we would move to Las Vegas, Nevada. I think about the story here and there, but now that I'm older, it's harder to put all the pieces together. I've seen a lot of things. I'm pretty sure I've even talked to something before. This was just one of my earliest memories as a kid. Let's just say, from that point on, I always slept with the door closed and the light on. I live just outside Louisville, Kentucky in a small town just across the Ohio River in Indiana. A few weeks ago, Louisville started to have protest marches for the BLM movement. Lots of people, myself included, downloaded a police scanner app to know what was going on in real time. 
At first, I just listened to different police departments in Louisville, but soon started checking out any town around Louisville for police dispatch reports. That's when things got weird. About six weeks ago, I was scrolling through different towns on the scanner, when at 2am on May 15th, I hear a 911 dispatcher send out a report. The dispatcher said a group of teens reported some type of creature stalking them. One cop replied and said, creature, how about a meth head? I remember the chuckling of the cop, and I remember chuckling at it too. Then the cop replied again and asked for the coordinates. The police department I was listening to was from Jeffersonville, Indiana, a small city just across the Ohio River from Louisville. Jeffersonville was like most small cities in the Midwest. You know God-fearing and with many drug-related problems over the last 10 years. So, the meth comment by the police officer seemed to be about right. I figured either the teens or the person they were calling about was on drugs. Having nothing else to do, seeing as weeks in quarantine had rendered me bored, I continued listening, hoping for something entertaining to happen. Well, about 20 minutes had passed when a very worried police officer came over the scanner. I don't know what is out here, but it is not a meth head. Send backup ASAP. The dispatcher then told the officer to change channels after that, and I didn't hear anything else about it. The next day I was on Facebook when I saw a friend reposting something about from the teens before. They recounted how they were walking by their waterfront Friday night when one of the teens in the group said they felt like they were being watched. After a few jokes on their behalf, some of the teens looked up and saw a giant creature up in a tree. They said it had red eyes, and once they noticed it, the creature jumped out of the tree and flew away. This was probably what most people laughed and mocked at. Myself, after reading it, got goosebumps though. I thought about how freaked out the cops sounded and figured these teens might have actually seen something. Days would pass with nothing but the usual banter on the police scanner. A few crimes here and there and protesters doing their thing. Other than that, there wasn't much to keep me occupied. Wednesday, the 20th of May... I had been unable to sleep, so with nothing to do, I sat down watching some television. After midnight sometime, I decided to open my scanner app and for a short while, after checking channels, I came across another weird dispatch. This time it was from New Albany, Indiana. The dispatcher was looking to send an officer out to respond to a car wreck. What happened next really had me on the edge of my seat. The scanner jumped alive after 10 minutes. The officer reported he needed an ambulance ASAP. The wreck was an older model Ford that had ran off the road going at a high rate of speed. The officer told dispatch that the driver was in his early 60s. He reported that he felt the man was driving while impaired. The dispatcher jokingly asked, what makes you say that? The officer replied, well, the driver says he lost the road while fleeing away from a winged man-like bird thing with glowing red eyes. Laughter was quickly silenced from the dispatcher when the officer whispered into the mic, Oh my god, I don't think we're alone. Send back up immediately. The scanner goes dead for quite a while, when suddenly, an officer feverishly screams, Shots fired! Shots fired! I think I hit it! The dispatcher quickly tells the officer to change channels. Nothing but silence came after that. I gripped my phone, waiting to hear more, but 
fell asleep shortly after. The next day in the local news, sandwiched in between news stories about politics and police brutality, there was a small story from New Albany. The news reporter said an officer while investigating an automobile accident was attacked. Upon other officers arriving on the scene, one of the officers was found unconscious. While surveying the incident, the other officers had seen a tall man running towards them after repeated commands to stop, and shots were fired. Then, the news reporter said it was at that point the suspicious man disappeared. The reporter then interviewed a homeowner who saw the incident. The homeowner relayed that they saw something strange happen after hearing shots ringing out. They saw the suspect fly into the air. The anchorman back at the studio said, well, it seems like he had a few beers last night, and tried to sweep it under the rug. It was after this that I decided out of boredom to look up the description of the subject on the internet, so I typed into Google winged man with glowing red eyes. What came up actually shocked me. I read on a few websites about a town in West Virginia called Point Pleasant, and several articles I learned that between November of 1966 till December of 1967, several residents had witnessed a moth-like creature with glowing red eyes. Some people described it as a creature with a 10-foot wingspan, glowing red eyes, and a man-like frame. I remember thinking, that's what people are seeing around here. I feverishly kept reading, and when I came upon this part, my heart almost dropped. December 15th, 1967, Silver Bridge and Point Pleasant collapsed, taking 46 souls with it. This news had me shaking my head. I kept reading other web pages, and there were several theories as to what happened. However, most pages feel this Mothman creature was an omen, some sort of warning or foreshadowing to the collapse of the bridge. This theory had me freaking out. You see, Louisville has five bridges crossing the Ohio River. There's the Big Four, the Lewis and Clark, the Abraham Lincoln, the Sherman Minton, and the JFK. A few years ago, the Corps of Engineers had to shut down the Sherman-Minton Bridge for a few months because of structural defects. Then there's the Abraham Lincoln, which was just recently built, so who knows how well that one is. I know they finished ahead of schedule, and at least one person died during construction. I've now have to take it upon myself to drive to these bridges and see if I noticed anything that could be wrong. I'm not sure what to even look for, but I can't sit here and do nothing. I've also gotten a hold of the teenagers from the first sighting, and they have agreed to tell me their story. I just want to say I'm a big fan of the swamp. Hell, there are times I fall asleep listening to the stories on the show. Just a bit of backtracking will hopefully give you a bit of a better picture of this whole thing. My girlfriend at the time and I lived in a small town in southern Illinois. I was the only one with a job at the time at a great factory. And no, the sighting was not due to lack of sleep. It was about mid-May, early June 2019 when I about lost my mind and possibly my life. My truck had been down for about a week, so I had to use her mom's little truck. I got up about 4 in the morning. It was still dark out and processed to have coffee, and then probably about 4.30 I leave. On the way out to work, about 4 miles from my house, the tire blew, and I knew I could not get a hold of anyone this early to help me out. 
I decided to call in and examine the problem, and being the hard-headed soldier I am, I locked the truck and started hoofing it home. Usually you can hear animals doing at least something, but it was dead silent. I felt that I was being watched about a mile in, but shook it off and walked on. The feeling never left, so I decided to play music to get it out of my mind. All was fine until I passed under the railroad bridge a half mile or so. I heard this loud and familiar noise. I looked around and I saw nothing, at least for the moment. I walked a bit further, and by this time the sun was giving enough light to make out all the surrounding fields and houses in the hills. I came up on the first fuel coming into town, by the road when something got my attention. I stopped to see a man on the far end of a 150 meter field. I chalked it up as a farmer bagged a deer with his bow, so I started walking again, and then I heard it again, and this time it was more of a roar than a yell. It finally hit me why it was so familiar. It had the same rhythm as the roar from the old Godzilla movies. I froze and turned slightly to see a man coming towards me. As he got closer to make out some details, my eyes started to well up with tears. This thing looked like my uncle who died when I was 12, and at the time I was 25. It made that noise again before picking up the pace, so I turned and bolted, doing all I could not to stop or slow down. I could hear its heavy footsteps gaining every few feet. I could feel it was right on me when a car started to come around the turn. Just like a flash, it stopped and to my surprise disappeared into the tree line. I saw my chance and took it. I was maybe three blocks away from my house, so I cut a few yards and hopped a fence to save time. My ex, but still my girlfriend at the time, had just laid back down when I burst through the door and fell to the floor. She ran in with my rifle ready and was surprised I was back, but she had a scared look on her face like she was ready for something. She locked the door and came to comfort me. I told her everything that went on, and she told me that she had seen something standing at the bottom of the hill watching the house when I left. We stayed up drinking coffee, too scared to sleep. If anyone can explain this, please leave a comment, and thank you Swamp Dweller. Hey Swamp Dweller, I'm a big fan of your channel and I listen to your episodes on an almost daily basis. I have a few stories for you that I've been meaning to submit for a long time now. I'm sorry if it's kind of long, but I wanted to get all my experiences written down. At the time of writing this, I'm a 28-year-old man. I've always considered myself one of those people who has never had any paranormal experiences. That is, until I started listening to your channel and taking a tally of all the creepy experiences in my life I came to realize that yes, I think I actually have been touched by the paranormal. I grew up in a small farming town in northwest Wisconsin. The area I grew up in was a very heavily wooded area, and there was a lot of remnants of Native American activity. Almost every town or river had a Native American name, and you could find a lot of arrowheads if you really looked for them. Our house was situated in the middle of a very thick forest on the outskirts of our town and about a mile back into the woods behind our house was a very large, very old Native American burial ground. The mound was this real tall hill in the middle of the woods that sort of came out of nowhere and had a vague pyramid-type shape. 
My friends and I would sometimes walk back into the woods just to visit it, because it was kind of cool. One time, me and a friend from down the street walked back to check it out and discovered somebody had built a small, creepy-looking Blair Witch Project-style stick hut on the very top of the mound. I suppose it could have been there from some kids messing around, but judging by how well-built it was, this seemed unlikely. Somebody who knew what they were doing had obviously spent a substantial amount of time building a weird hut in the middle of the woods, but we didn't find any other evidence of human activity, and we got really creeped out, so we left immediately, and I don't think we ever went back. Anyways, my family's house was built in the middle of a peculiar plot of fine yellow sand, about three acres in size. It looked like somebody had scooped up a section of tropical beach and plopped it randomly in the middle of Wisconsin. We were told that this was due to an ancient ice glacier grinding down rocks as they slowly made their way across the continent. Whatever the cause, I always had a hunch that our plot of land must have had some significance to Native Americans, considering how odd and out of place it was in the middle of this pine forest. This is kind of important, because based on my experiences in this house, it seems likely our house was a brand new construction that we moved in into as soon as it was finished. But I always had a vague sense that there was something weird or mystical about our property and the surrounding woods. For the first couple of years we lived in this house, nothing out of the ordinary really happened. That is until one night when I had one of the most significant paranormal experiences of my life. Just to give you a picture of the scene, my bedroom was in the basement of the house, and the door to my room was located at the bottom of the stairs immediately to the right of the last step. When he walked into my bedroom, my bed was against the wall straight ahead, and there was a window immediately to the left. One night, I was about 15 or 16 at the time, I was asleep in my bed. Everybody in the house was asleep and all the lights were off. Suddenly, sometime around 3am, I woke up on my back looking at the ceiling and for the first thing I noticed was that there was a strange blue glow in my room. I had a stereo in my room that would cast a faint green light from the clock display, but for some reason, the green glow turned blue. Also, the air looked kind of misty. The next thing I noticed was that I could not move a muscle, no matter how hard I tried. I started panicking. After about 10 seconds of struggling and asking myself what the hell is going on, I experienced the most frightening thing I have ever experienced. I noticed that I could start sort of physically feeling a presence on the top of the stairs outside my bedroom. The presence felt evil and emanated a feeling of dread that I cannot properly describe to you in words. Almost immediately after I sensed this presence, I got the sense that it could tell I knew it was there and it knew I was awake. In my mind's eye, I sensed its head snap and look in my direction. Suddenly, I heard heavy, loud footsteps going from the top of the stairs and scramble all the way down to the bottom, like the creature was crawling on all fours. It sounded exactly like the scene in The Exorcist when the girl crawls backwards down the steps, but the footsteps were heavier and a lot louder. It abruptly stopped right in front of my bedroom door. Through sheer force of will, I was able to turn my head and look at the door. The door slowly creaked open, and I will never forget what I saw. A sickly pale colored humanoid-shaped creature 
about the size of a man slowly crawled along the floor into my room on all fours. It was skinny, and its skin had no texture to it. It was just a plain, pale sickly color. I watched it slowly crawl right up to my bed and put its hand on my covers and slowly raised itself up. It revealed a face that was completely blank and featureless. No eyes, no nose, no ears, nothing but a blank pale slate. Nothing except a wide, grinning mouth that had long, thin, crooked, pointy teeth. The best way I can describe it is that it looked exactly like Venom from Spider-Man, except skinnier, pale-colored, and no facial features. It slowly, menacingly started pulling itself closer to my face. As it got closer, it slowly opened its mouth and hissed at me. I saw a long, black snake-like tongue fall out from its mouth between the rows of sharp crooked teeth. I was the most scared I've ever been in my life, and I did the only thing I could possibly do, which was turn my head away from it. I heard the hissing grow closer and closer to my ear and felt its tongue brush against the side of my face and its breath against my hair. The hissing got louder as it got closer, and then I blacked out from fear. I woke up a few minutes later, and the creature was gone. I still could not move, and my head was turned towards my bedroom door. The blue glow in the room had changed to a sinister red glow, and my door was sitting open about 12 inches. I just laid there and stared at my door wondering what the heck just happened, and what was going to happen next. Suddenly, I saw three hooded figures slowly glide into my room through the door. They moved very slowly and deliberately, Without stepping motions, it was incredibly smooth, almost like they were levitating a couple of inches off the ground. I watched as they floated in a single file, and they came to a stop and stood against the wall opposite of my bed. They were probably around six feet tall, and they were nothing but identical dark silhouettes of hooded figures. I could not make out their faces or any features. They were a darkness that seemed darker than the rest of the room itself almost like they sucked away the light around them. I could tell that they were looking at me. They stood there for no more than ten seconds, just staring in dead silence, not ever making a single noise. And then, as slowly as they entered, they turned and silently glided out of my room. As the last figure walked out of my door, it suddenly paused, turned its head to look at me. It then grabbed the doorknob and closed my door. I struggled for another few seconds. I honestly had no idea what happened. Finally, I sat bolt right up in my bed, loudly gasping for air. Everything in my room instantly returned to normal. I darted my eyes around the room, but everything was as it should be. I'm not sure how I managed it, but I laid back down and thought to myself, it was just a dream. It was just a dream. Over and over, until I finally fell asleep. I was in complete denial of what I had just experienced. I later came to learn that this was probably a phenomenon called sleep paralysis, but it felt very, very real. Over the next couple of years to come, I would have other crazy experiences with sleep paralysis in this house, and it was always in this house, nowhere else. One notable experience that comes to mind is I woke up on my back like usual and felt the same evil aura of dread outside my door. It slowly floated closer and closer to my bedroom until it entered my room through my closed door. This time, it was invisible. 
but it was there. At this point in time, my bed was rotated with the foot of the bed facing the door, and I felt it get right up to my bed. Suddenly, I saw and felt indents form at the foot of my bed as if a heavy, invisible person was crawling onto my bed. I saw the indents move up the bed next to me, and then a large indent formed next to my entire body, like the presence was laying down next to me. This type of thing became a rather common occurrence. I would have extremely frightening experiences like this every other month. I tried my best to ignore it, but honestly, it was never anything easy. My parents ended up separating about a year later and renting out the house, and the people my parents rented the house to ended up accidentally burning it down. Don't worry, they made it out and nobody was hurt. Sometimes, I wonder if whatever the present was in that house had something to do with this. The weird thing is, is my house was the third house on my street to burn down. Anyway, these are some of my experiences. This is all 100% true to the best of my memory. I hope you enjoyed it, and thanks for taking the time to read it, Swamp Dweller. Three years ago, I was living with my then-boyfriend in a one-bedroom apartment in a little mountain town. It was a half-basement unit, so the bottom of all of our windows were level with the ground outside. It was also an older apartment, and not all the windows would fully lock. One day, my boyfriend comes home from work while I'm lying on the sofa, and immediately runs up to the window near me and looks out of it frantically. He then goes to look out every other window in the house then walks around the outside looking in the windows. When he comes back in from this confusing exploit, I ask him what the heck is going on. I think I just walked up on a dude looking in the window at you. He took off as I walked up, he tells me. This was naturally very unsettling, but after discussing it and considering the time of day, around 2pm, and the number of people out and about around the complex at the time, we came to the conclusion that it was probably just a curious neighbor or someone passing by, happening to glance in. With that, we forgot about it. If only that was the end of the story. For the next couple of months, odd stuff happened here and there. Someone would knock on the door occasionally. Then, when I went to answer the door, no one was ever there. I'd find things in my apartment that I was not familiar with, or things like clothing items would vanish. I didn't really think much about it, until one night. My boyfriend and I were arguing. Around one or two in the morning, we were being a little bit loud about it. We were standing in the kitchen face to face. His back was to an open window with the blinds up halfway, and I was facing it. Amidst our arguing, I glanced behind him at the window, thinking I saw the reflection of my face in it. The window was open. It wasn't my face. There was a man with his face pressed almost against the window screen watching us. Given the fact that we were arguing, and it was late, I thought for a moment that it might have been a concerned neighbor walking up to the window to speak to us. A main walkway for the complex was right on the other side of that window, so I spoke to him. Uh, hello, can I help you? I asked a little aggressively, thinking a neighbor was intruding on our privacy. He responded by just staring unwavering and cold, directly at me. His face did not change expression. He did not blink or move at all. He just looked right at me. I have never been looked at like this before, or since. It's something that's almost impossible to describe. 
in this instant. I also realized that because of the window being level with the ground, the only way this man's face to be where it was was if he was laying on the ground outside of the apartment or crouched and contorted to look into the window. My heart absolutely sank. I buried my face in my boyfriend's chest and closed my eyes in fear. My boyfriend up to this point thought I was messing with him. When I buried my face in his chest, only then did he say, Is there really someone at the window? I whispered that there was. He felt my fear and took a moment before he turned around. By the time he did, the man was gone though. It was at this point that I started to think about the little odd occurrences that I had been experiencing. I assumed the worst. I filed a police report with his description, and my brother loaded my apartment up with weapons to protect me, or at least inform this peeping Tom that I was armed. After that night, myself, my boyfriend, and my brother were on high alert. There were a couple of times when my brother came over that he saw a sketchy dude hanging around, and even one time he saw him at my window. He tried to follow him discreetly, but the guy took off running as soon as he saw my brother stepping into his direction. The last night I had an experience with this man, I was sitting home alone on my sofa. My boyfriend was at work at a restaurant about two blocks away. He had picked me up from work about an hour earlier. We had sat on the sofa together for a little while when we got home. Then he kissed me and left for work, locking the door behind him. After he left, I continued to sit on the couch. I was scrolling Reddit for a while as well. After about an hour or so of me sitting there in silence, I hear a door creak open. It's a pretty small apartment, so I can see the bedroom and bathroom doors from the couch. All I would have to do is just turn my head a little bit to the left. I assumed it was one of my cats coming out of my bedroom, so you can imagine my shock when I lean over and see the door that's opening is the door to the water heater closet. I look to my right and see both my cats sleeping soundly at the other end of the couch. I look back to the door and it's still creaking open very, very slowly. It opens enough for me to see it. A set of fingers wrapped around the door, easing the door ever so gently to open it as quietly as possible. That was going to be a no for me. I ran my ass barefooted out the door, into the snow, and down the street to my boyfriend's job. I called the cops, and when everyone was back to check out the apartment, of course he was gone. After that, my boyfriend and I packed our stuff and went to stay with my parents, and six months later, we moved a thousand miles away from that town, and that was the end of it. I live a thousand miles away from where all of this happened, so a part of me thinks there's no way this person could have found me. But last week, I heard a knock on my front door of my apartment. I was expecting a package, so I figured it was a delivery driver and didn't really answer. I'd go get the package later when I was ready. Then they knocked again and again. The third one made me feel uneasy, so I waited a good 20 minutes to check the door. When I did, there was no package, no note, nothing. Someone was just knocking. Although it made me uneasy, I didn't really think back to my stressful experience in my last town. A few days later, I went out to get groceries. I have a little patio and I go out there in the mornings to just chill or check on plants. I have a lot of stuff going on in my backyard. I've been known to leave it unlocked during the day by accident from time to time and I never really thought it was a huge deal until I came home from the store two days ago and the deadbolt to my apartment was locked. The deadbolt that can only be locked from the inside of the apartment. I assume somebody robbed me 
because I had dumbly left the patio unlocked. I called my sister, I called my current new boyfriend, I waited for people to be with me, and I went into my apartment through this lighting glass patio door. Nothing was out of place. Nothing of value was taken. At this point, my heart sank. Nothing was touched, nothing stolen. Someone was inside my apartment just because they wanted to be inside of my apartment. I filed a police report. We checked for recording devices and cameras. We put up our own cameras all over the place, and we are on high alert. A couple of neighbors that I am friends with have been helping me look for suspicious characters. Today, one of them said that on Sunday night, while I was home, a strange woman who he's never seen around the complex before knocked on her door about 9.45pm and asked if I lived there. She didn't use my name, just described me. My neighbor, knowing the situation with me, just said no and closed the door. I really, truly hope this is a coincidence. But if whoever it was really followed me across multiple state lines, there's no one on this earth that I'm less interested in meeting. <laughs>